today on Laura Lynn and Friends. I absolutely see a very strong signal pointing directly at the COVID-19 inoculations when it comes to the most plausible explanation for why we have these large excess deaths continuing to happen unabated ever since the very end of 2021 when the vaccine rollout began. Hello everyone and welcome to the beginning of the last days. I am so excited to be back in my studio. We've been trying to do uh, the show from, you know, different places and uh, it's a little bit harder for me. So this is good. And when we were last on, our computer froze and I was knocked out and we had to just end the show and that was it. And that just felt terrible. So I don't like any of that happening. And uh, it's good to be back. We got JT in the hot seat and we got Shane helping us on the side. And what a show we have. Dr. Byram Bridal coming up after Kay Carl. This is a Canadian doctor that is uh, telling the truth, shaming the devil, changing the world. And that's what we like to do on this show in general. So you all know that uh, since my dad passed away, I like to open up his Bible. And he was a man who loved the word and he has underlined all kinds of cool things. So today it opens up to Ezekiel 28. Do you know what? This entire chapter, you want to know what the devil looks like? You want to understand the, the actual physical being of who Lucifer is? It's described in Ezekiel 28. So my dad has underlined a whole bunch of things. It talks about like um, in verse... Um, in verse 13, that uh, he was in, the, in Eden, in the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. In sardius, topaz, and diamonds, uh, beryl, onyx, jasper, and sapphire. These are the things that covers, covers the literal physical being of the devil. Is it any wonder that he looks like he's some kind of cool dude? The word says that he'll even appear as an angel of light. Well, no wonder. He's got all those diamonds sparkling on him and those sapphires. He is literally made of these beautiful, beautiful things. The workmanship of thy tabrets and thy pipes were prepared in the, in the day that thou wast created. Now, you know, the one thing about my dad's Bible is it's all Old English, so I got to give you the, the scoop on how it is. What this is saying is that there were pipes and that when he was created, his literal being is an instrument. That's why he loves music. That's why he has seized the music of the day is because the devil knows music like nobody's business. In fact, he was in charge of music in heaven. That's why he uses all this stuff, right? All of this sexualization of, of music, all of these rock stars, they, they sell their soul so that they can get a song written by Satan himself. It goes to number one. But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So this is what happens. He he was in charge of music in heaven to honor and worship God until the day that he thought, I can be God. That was his big downfall. And that's how we got stuck with him here on earth, which is not cool, I have to say. So 
this is underlined uh, very st distinctly, a whole bunch of things in this chapter by my father. But in chapter, uh, so it's chapter 28 of Ezekiel, verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Let me put it in the English language, you understand, instead of saying thine and thy and all of that. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Lucifer was so beautiful, he got proud. You were corrupted by your wisdom and by the reason of your brightness. Wow, he was so smart, so bright, and so beautiful that he was corrupted. And it says, I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Oh, my word. What does that mean? He lays him before kings. Does that mean the leaders of all the countries? So that they will behold thee. I kind of wonder if our prime minister and the president of the United States of America is beholding him and operating under his auspices. Well, let's, uh, let's go to uh, Gravitas. What is it? Um, Project Veritas, not Gravitas. Project Veritas, let's go look and see what they are finding out. This is so cool, take a look. Pfizer ultimately is thinking about mutating COVID? Well, that is not what we say to the public. No, don't tell anyone this story. You probably shouldn't tell anyone. You probably shouldn't tell anyone. We're exploring, like, no, you know how the virus keeps mutating? Yeah. Well, one of the things we're exploring is, like, why don't we just mutate it ourselves so we can preemptively develop new vaccines, right? So we have to do that. If we're going to do that, though, there's a risk of, like, as you could imagine, no one wants to be having a pharma company mutating viruses. be, like, very controlled to make sure that this virus that you mutate doesn't create something like, you know, it goes everywhere. Something crazy. It's the way that the virus started and moving on. To be honest, like, it's, it makes no sense if this virus popped out of nowhere. Like, yeah, I know. Meet Jordan Tristan Walker, a director of research and development strategic operations and mRNA scientific planning at Pfizer. It sounds like gain of function to me. I don't know, it's a little bit different. I think it's different. It's like this. It's definitely not getting a function. It sounds like it is. I mean, it's okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. So directed evolution is very different. Well, you're not supposed to do gain function research with the viruses. Like, yeah. They recommend not. But you do like these like selected directional mutations to try to see if you can make more potent. Yeah. So there, there is research I'm going about that. I don't know how that's going to work. There not be any more outbreaks to think Jesus Christ. The gentleman seems to have absolutely no moral compass at all. Why the revolving door for all government officials? It's pretty good for the industry, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> it's bad for everyone else in America. Why is it bad for everybody else? Because if the regulators who have to approve our drugs know that once they stop being a regulator, they want to go work for the company, they're not going to be as hard for the company. They're hearing their job. If this is the quality of individuals within Pfizer that are making these huge decisions that uh, risk global public health. It's profoundly corrupt. Wow. All right. I think he was going to say corrupt, profoundly corrupt. So what do you think about that? What did they call it? Directed evolution. It's not gain of function. It's directed evolution. Does that sound like something very evil? Directed by an evil entity? I, th I sure think it does. One more clip before we are going to go to our beloved guest. Kay Carl today is here. Um, 
let's have a look at Laura Ingram on what Pfizer has in mind for our future. The FDA has officially asked its panel of advisors to approve an annual COVID shot for healthy adults, similar to the influenza campaigns meant at combating the flu. Now, forget potential side effects, adverse reactions. A new study that reveals that any protection gained from booster shots wanes rapidly. But would an annual shot be any different? Joining me now, Dr. Marty McCary from Johns Hopkins. Uh, he's a professor there, author of The Price We Pay. Dr. McCary, what is going on with this shifteroo at the FDA? Well, there's an agenda from the White House, and it's coming right from Ashish Jha and Dr. Fauci that are that's saying we need an indefinite vaccination policy for life. That means a 12-year-old girl will get 60 mRNA vaccine doses in her average lifetime. And they're ignoring the 1 in 5,000 risk of myocarditis in young males. They're ignoring the 1 in 800 risk of severe adverse events. Now, th these are well documented. These are from big studies. This is no longer an idea or a, a small anecdotal experience. And all this for a bivalent vaccine for which we don't know the efficacy. There's no randomized controlled trial. And the FDA advisors that you mentioned learned that Moderna was hiding data that the bivalent vaccine they developed actually had more infections in the vaccine arm of the trial than in the placebo arm. And they're pretty upset that they didn't see that data. Hmm. Absolutely fascinating. I think it's good that, uh, you know, all, all of this information is beginning to come out. And what we are seeing is that uh, there is definitely substantial, good, solid uh, testing data studies that have come out, not just in America, worldwide, showing that there's an awful lot that our governments, the FDA, our doctors should be paying attention to. So I won't say anything more about that. We are, after all, on YouTube today. Uh, I would like to welcome to the show a retired U.S. Army officer and former member of President Trump's Presidential Campaign Coalition Advisory Board. K. Carl is a nationally recognized author, uh, speaker, and creator of the Facebook Douglas Republican Engagement Strategy. Oh, Frederick, sorry. Frederick Douglas. Uh, a powerful and proven persuasive messaging approach developed through 12 years of real-world success. Mr. Smith is the foremost expert on diversity engagement and has empowered thousands of grassroots conservatives, candidates, Republican Party precinct leaders, and county and state leaders with his proprietary, game-changing diversity outreach approach. And I just want to thank you uh, for coming on the show sir, today. Um, I, I want to tell you about a personal experience I had, and that was with a young man named Franklin. And this last week, I was uh, down in the United States of America, and I met him, sir. And of course, he was, he began talking to me, you know, about how he was brought up and all of his beliefs. And then he says to me, like, oh my gosh, I'm listening to Candace Owens. And, and, um, you know, the, the, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter is not what I thought it was. It's got a whole bunch of stuff mixed up in there. Do you think, sir, that there is a movement where we are beginning to see what's really the truth and that that is making a difference to the African-American community? Very, very much so. You know, the truth can't be denied forever. So as time goes along, you will hear people like Candace Owens when they speak, people are going to start paying attention to it because they see before them 
what's going on and if the if these people just become a little bit more critical minded and don't believe anything somebody tells them do some research that you're going to see more of an awakening that's going to occur not just in the black community but even people who've been indoctrinated into socialism or marxism going to have an awakening once they would be once they exposed to the truth i can't hear you As you are watching America, what are you seeing is going on with this Biden administration? Uh, this is pretty shocking, the amount of people coming over the southern border completely unprotected. You don't know if there's sexual predators. Uh, I do understand they found numerous uh, folks, you know, gentlemen with uh, records and people that should not be allowed in our country, but they're all kind of trying to come in. Well, you, I think what you're going to see, what you see happening is that people are having buyer's remorse when it comes to Joe Biden administration because they're feeling the pinch and the misery and they, feel, they don't feel protected. You know, first, the first role of government is to, is to protect us and they're not protecting us, especially at the border. And so you see a lot of things that's taking place where people are looking for an alternative and um we just got to become better uh conservatives we got to become better truth tellers and better messengers of liberty so we can have this worldwide uh, awakening and where we can push forth the truth and do it in a way where it resonates with people and that's what we have to do more of but the truth is coming out you're exactly right yes sir um with with your experience that you had what what compelled you to work with uh mr trump and what do you see uh, leading up to 2024? What are your hopes? Uh, what What do you think will happen? Well, the reason why I align myself with uh, President Trump because I will unite with anybody that wants to do right. That's my bottom line. I will not unite with anybody who wants to do wrong. And so he's a fundamentally a decent individual, but the left has portrayed him in a way that he's not in order to minimize the impact and the effectiveness of this of this charismatic charismatic man so i love his policies um he stood for our godly uh, constitutional principles that that's very important and so but he was shaking up the apple cart and the money flow for those inside the beltway he was shaking that up and that's why people came back and pushed back against him so what i see for the future Whoa, that's a good question. In terms of the presidential race, the president uh, uh, Donald Trump threw his hat in, and uh, so Pence did as well. I'm waiting. I'm waiting to see what will. Uh, I can't think of his name. The, the the governor of Florida. Oh, oh, DeSantis. DeSantis. Yep. DeSantis. I'm waiting to see what DeSantis is going to do. So, um, do you do you think he will, or he's going to stay clear and bide his time for 2028, perhaps? That he, do you, do you think I, you he's know, kind of a loyalist? My, my, and, my personal feeling is, I think he'll do it. You think he'll put it? I think, in? I think, I think, I think so. Now, I don't see maybe Pence. That's, right. Go ahead. Maybe that's, maybe that's wishful thinking on my part, mostly. But yeah, we, we, need, we need a presidential candidate that's a uniter. That's not, that's not divisive. Um, 
And sometimes the president, because he's on Twitter a lot, sometimes he's portrayed by the left as being divisive. Well, we need somebody in the office who can overcome that and be more of a uniter is my concern. And uh, we'll see. Right. Now, this Pence thing, uh, I I don't think he has a hope in Hades. I, I don't either. I don't think. Uh, uh, with the, maybe the uh, more of a rhino Republicans, yes. But for his mainstream Republicans, I, I, don't, I, don't I don't see like it happening. I, I find yeah, him so crooked. Like, what do you yeah. think? He could have done something very courageous when uh, Mr. Trump had asked him to indeed um, call for some scrutiny over the previous election, just some scrutiny, right, exactly. give it a, a pullback. And he well, he did not help at all. Well, you hit the nail on the head right there. And with, with him, my personal preference is I trust him as probably as far I can pick him up and throw him. That's about it. Yes, sir. I am 100% on your side about that. Um, Kay, Carl, what are you seeing uh, in the future for um, Americans for this diversity? We've been really divided. Uh, it feels like this critical race theory and all of that. I'll tell you, I love my African-American brothers and sisters, probably because I was born in Uganda and I thought I was black for the first eight years of my life. But uh, I, I find myself really, really, um, you know, I just, I, I love the the opportunities and the diversity that we have in North America, that's Canada as well. And I don't see the racism that people are portraying. Yeah. Um, I think uh, what has to happen to improve the situation in our country in terms of race relations, we've come a long way. It's, we're, not at, we're not at a level of utopia yet, but we have come a long way. There's been a lot of improvement. But we, of course, we got to remain, remain vigilant. I think what's, what has to happen next is not an issue of race. It's really classism. Um, we have the elitists in both parties are out to now trying to enslave all of us who are not elitists. And so that's the fight. And so we got to put make sure race is, uh, race is not really the main issue. It's really elitism and classism that's separating and dividing us. That's where the real fight is. Okay, well, um, the the one thing that I'm hoping is that more people, uh, more folks like my friend Franklin, that I uh, that I met this last week, that more folks like that are beginning are going to begin looking at guys like you, uh, looking at I love the Hodge twins, you know, I love these people that are leading the way into us embracing each other and laughing and yeah. defeating the lies of what our young people are being propagandized into. I, I agree. And I think every one of us who are liberty advocates, we must learn how to become better messengers of liberty. And we must learn how to be effective in communicating a language of liberty that has a universal appeal. Because I think the fight is that this with young people, that we got to become better message of liberty where we can awaken and educate uh, young people about the value of liberty. Uh, we got to we got to get a hold of these Marxist indoctrinated individuals out here um, 
Because I think socialism and Marxism is a great thing. We got to turn that around. So we got to become better. In other words, I got to become better at talking to my grandchild, my, my children, my relatives, my friends about the value of liberty because they have been indoctrinated into socialism, into Marxism. That's where the fight is. What what kind of price have you paid personally, sir, for standing up and speaking the way you do, sort of going against the the grain? Back when I used to call myself and identify myself as a conservative, I lost a lot. I lost relationships. I was engaged to be married, and when the, when the my young lady, when her parents found out that I was a conservative, a Republican, they threatened to take her out of the will. So that was back when I was calling myself a conservative. But now in lieu of saying conservative, I identify myself as a Frederick Douglass Republican. Now things are different because people want to know, what are you talking about? And that's when I can seize control of the narrative and inspire them to vote their values. And they have become Frederick Douglass Republicans as well and have had a, an eye-opening, an awakening by the liberty message of Douglass. Yes, uh, I remember you speaking about this the last time and uh, just hearing those words, I vote my values. Um, you know, before I let you go, I don't understand how, how Christians can vote for Democrats who are authorizing abortion up till birth and in some states, past birth. Like who, yeah. these are not people you can ever vote for if you think there's a God. Yeah, and my my thought is that in particular in the black community, abortion is not the number one issue or concern. It's racism. So in the black community, we have a tendency we will vote for uh, a devout socialist before we vote for someone who we think is a racist and espousing and, and talking about the evilness of abortion. I don't I don't agree with that, but. That's what we're doing in many cases. And you're exactly right. And here's the thing, Lauren, that when you look at the other side, I just make it simple as this. Anyone that embraces infanticide will do anything and has a reprobate mind. They, don't, they can't see it. God has taken their sense of conscience away. And they'll do anything. If they, if, if they support that, they'll support anything. Of course, they won't get my vote. 100% sir. I just value you. You are making such a difference uh in the world, in the nation. Uh, how does it feel to be a a nation-changing individual? I, I I don't see myself that way. I'm just doing what God has called me to do. I just made myself available to, uh, to him and he's taking it from there. And so I love it. I, I don't I don't even really think of it that way. Right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to get uh, my my new friend in the States to watch this interview and to get following you. And uh, we have been putting your, um, we have been putting your website up so people can follow you there. And I uh, just thank you, sir, for your courage. Thanks for taking time to, to speak with us today. Hey, thank, thank you for inviting me back. I enjoyed it. You're welcome. God bless. Take care. God bless. Bye. All right. Well, coming up, uh, we have got Dr. Byron Bridal. He is a Canadian hero, and we know the price he's paid. Just before that, we're going to go to a brief clip to set him up, and then uh, we might have to let go. Uh, oh, it's a web page. Oh, so I've got to read it then. Um, 
We might have to let go of you there, you at YouTube. Uh, but let's take a look at this. This is fascinating. Maybe you can see what uh, Dr. Bridal thinks about this. But inhaled Canadian COVID-19 vaccine to enter phase two human trials. So this is absolutely, um, hmm, I think it's kind of frightening. A new made in Canada COVID-19 vaccine that can be inhaled is set to enter phase two the, the vaccine is being developed at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. There is a pressing need, really, to develop new, more effective next-generation vaccine strategies. More effective, were they not safe and effective? Um, what's the problem? Why does it have to be new? Inhaled? What does that mean? Like, So my question is, am I walking down a hallway and somebody's just spritz the air with an inhaled vaccine and I'm just getting it because I'm in the vicinity? I had a very unfortunate, you know, time on the plane where they were just spraying and spraying all the, you know, all the aisles. And uh, that was annoying. And I thought, well, what kind of horrible things are getting into me from this spray that was so toxic and just literally made my asthma uh, act up? Um, what does it mean to have something that you can spray in the air and uh, it, it overtakes us? So I'm just going to ask uh, JT. I'm going to let's let's bring on uh, Dr. Byron Bridal. Let me read his first. Let me just uh Hello, sir. Welcome to the show. I want to tell everyone just a little bit about you. Uh, you are an associate professor of viral immunology who specializes in the development, optimization, and safety testing of vaccines. You uh, teach or have taught immunology. I'm going to find out where you're at right now because I know that there you've had to face a whole series of things, virology and cancer biology at the undergraduate and graduate levels. You have received multiple prestigious awards for his teaching and has published extensively in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. Dr. Bridal has also received multiple citations as a top-tier reviewer for Canada's National Medical Research Granting Agency. He was the first to warn the public that mRNA vaccines could distribute throughout the body, and now we're finding that to be true, thereby promoting harm by multiple mechanisms of action. Dr. Bridal, welcome to the show. I think we're going to have to make a decision now for and ask all of our YouTube people. If you want to know the truth, uh, we're going to ask you to head on over to Rumble right now. It is in the description underneath where you're watching. It's in the chat. It's there. Uh, otherwise, go to rumble.com, Google my name. And we just want to be respectful of YouTube because uh, they have certain parameters. So we're going to continue to talk about the truth with Dr. Byron Bridal. Dr. Bridal, welcome to the show. Uh, what do you think about this thing that I just showed? Do we do we need something that's now going to give us the vaccine, you know, in the air? Uh, yeah. So first, thanks for having me, Laura Lynn. I really appreciate this opportunity to chat with you and uh, and to present, you know, um, scientific truths to your audience and uh, to try and help correct a lot of the scientific misinformation that's been put forward by, unfortunately. Uh, public health and government leaders. So, uh, yeah, I'm very, I'm very familiar with this research that's going on at McMaster University. Uh, um, so, I just want to point out one thing. I, I personally don't have any concerns with this um, intranasally administered or inhaled uh, vaccines. In fact, that's one of the number one reasons I'm, I'm quite certain that the current COVID-19 so-called vaccines 
have not been working well. There's many reasons, but one of them is that they're injected into uh, the muscle. And when you inject a vaccine into the muscle, you trick your body. The whole purpose of a vaccine, remember, is to try and trick the body into thinking that there's an infection. Ideally, you want the body to mount an immune response, and the gold standard for that would be a naturally acquired immune response. So ideally, you want to try and uh, get, mount, get the body tricked into thinking it's infected so it mounts the response equivalent to what it would if it was naturally infected. Uh, and, and that way, without having to experience the, the issues with the disease. Now, when you inject into a muscle, the body gets tricked into thinking that it's a systemic infection. And so you, you mount a, uh, you would typically mount what we call a systemic response. Um, and that response uh, does not spill over efficiently to the upper airways. And so that's almost certainly why these current vaccines have not been able to stop transmission and have not been particularly effective. So I'm not saying that this uh, new vaccine that's being tested uh, will be effective, but theoretically, that is the right approach. So it, no, it's not something they would put in the air. It would be something that, for example, you could put it into an inhaler, or there's masks that you can put on where um, a solution gets nebulized, which means turned into basically a, you know, an aerosol that can then be inhaled. Uh, there's also work on vaccines where, where they could be uh, infused intranasally, right? So people might remember, there's lots of nasal sprays that people use, for example, that they uh, squirt up their, their nose and, and inhale. Uh, and the whole idea being, that if you initiate an immune response at the site of infection, then the immune response that gets induced will be present and effective at the site of infection. So I do agree theoretically that this is the proper way to administer vaccines against respiratory pathogens. But you pointed out uh, something that's interesting. Uh, one, one of the things that's interesting that wording is highlighting the need for more effective vaccines. Um, and you're right, that completely flies in the face of what we've been told for the last three years, which is that we have very effective and very safe vaccines. So how much better can you get? Uh, now, I know we could get way better because what we've been using are so far from an ideal vaccine that it's very difficult to capture them under that umbrella term. Uh, but at the same token, we, we don't need this. This is another experimental vaccine. It'll be a viral vector vaccine. Uh, it's based on adenovirus uh, technology, which is what the Johnson Johnson vaccine was based on. Again, it's going to get cells to manufacture the spike protein, as well as uh, other proteins, as I understand, which is appropriate, this thought of broadening the immune response. So I like the basic design, the thought process that has gone behind this vaccine in theory. It should be more effective, um, but we're dealing with a virus now that's gone endemic and is largely causing colds, at, at, you know, mild to moderate colds in the vast majority of people. The vast majority of people have natural immunity, although we pretended for the past three years that natural immunity isn't a real thing. The reality is our immune systems have continued to function over the past three years as they have historically prior to this declared pandemic. And if you have, and, and I now in my reviews am up to something like 140 peer-reviewed scientific papers all showing um, the, the vast superiority of naturally acquired immunity relative to the inoculations we've currently been using. And so when we have this effective broad-based immunity already as a population, this virus now can be treated like other cold-causing coronaviruses, which means we live with it. Um, the virus will mutate slowly over time, and I would argue 
uh, much more slowly than if we keep pressuring it with these very subpar vaccines. But it, nevertheless, it's going to continue to mutate, just like the cold-causing virus. It'll slowly mutate over time. And as it accumulates enough mutations, it'll start evading the, our natural immune responses to the point where we might get a little bit sick again. Uh, and then we'll mount another immune response and clear the infection, and we'll be up to date until the virus is mutated sufficiently again. And we'll go through that same cycle that we do with other, all other cold-causing viruses. So I hear you. It's uh, To me, clinical trial testing requires an enormous amounts of money. Um, we don't need to be wasting our money on this and, and a novel technology. And like I said, there's questions now about using adenoviruses as vaccines because of the um, disaster that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was in Canada. And there are lots of questions still surrounding um, the spike protein and what will happen if we get our lungs to manufacture the spike protein. So, you know, I like the idea. Uh, scientifically, I like the concept, uh, but I do have substantial concerning questions. And I, and, and I, I would just argue it's just not needed. It's not worth the investment of money at this time. We have, we have bigger problems now to deal with in, in the context of human health. Okay, so, so we don't necessarily need to be so worried because what I've heard recently as well is people saying that they want to put this mRNA. So, so some of the concerns that, that people are, are feeling is why all of the sudden death? Why, why all of these athletes that are suddenly dropping? Um, as an expert, uh, you may or may not um, have, have some answers that could help us because we're really trying to get proof of what is it that's causing the death count to rise. I think we have uh, something about the death count, right, uh, JT, across the world um, is rising. Um, so we're concerned about that. And then we do hear that maybe they'd like to put the mRNA into our meats, our foods, perhaps. And so we don't want it in the air. If we don't want mRNA, like I had COVID, everyone I know has had COVID and we're good, you know? Exactly. So, yeah, in, in terms of the sudden deaths, I, yeah, I, I, I've seen the data there as much as other so-called experts and public health officials and government officials, who notably are the same ones that have been pushing this, uh, you know, singular COVID narrative that's been allowed for the past few years. They're really trying to downplay this and, and try and convince us that the background um, for these sudden deaths uh, was higher than we appreciated before, right? And we, we, we've just somehow got better very recently uh, at identifying and publicizing these data. Well, that, that's kind of crazy because scientific data has never been as non-transparent uh, in the entire history of science as it has been over the past few years. So I don't buy it that now when it comes to this you know, sudden death data that all of a sudden we're becoming far more transparent and far better at identifying it. Um, it does seem to be a real issue. Uh, you know, it's hard to hide this when you look at it in the context of all-cause mortality which is just, you know, total number of deaths, not looking at what specifically the causes are. And so I'll tell you, so Laura, this is my take on it. Um, for any individual case, could I, or could any other physician or scientist for that matter, definitively state that it's due to the vaccine? No, definitely not in a case by case basis, but this is the whole point. Can anybody rule it out as being uh, related to the vaccines? And I would say absolutely not, especially a lot of these sudden deaths that are occurring or people collapsing and then having to be revived afterwards. 
are, are related to cardiac issues. And we know these vaccines are linked to cardiac problems. They can cause cardiac damage. The peer-reviewed literature is clear on this now, right? People have shown uh, staining, you know, like you can see with your own eyes, the staining of the spike protein present in the heart muscle of people who have developed myocarditis after receiving these vaccines. There's no question about that now. But so this is the thing. So we have to, so I would say we have to be open to the possibility and we have to investigate all possibilities. And this is definitely, there's been lots of questions about the mechanism of action of these vaccines. We know they can cause cardiovascular problems. So it has to be on the table as something that we investigate. Um, when, when these people are collapsing, these athletes, I find it unbelievable. Um, it seems like immediately there's cardiologists that are brought on to television. And if you've noticed, Laura Lynn, they always have the same message. And I point this out to, to your audience. They have to watch carefully. Like, for example, when, when this recent NFL player uh, collapsed on the field, you know, and, and we know any, any professional player that did not receive a COVID-19 vaccine was harassed, uh, intimidated, made fun of, you know, in the media. So we can have a pretty good idea, you know, who did and who didn't when it comes to professional sports in North America, you know, who did and who didn't get these shots. So, you know, but what happened is, you know, he collapsed and then it was like nobody was allowed to ask that question. Could it be related to the vaccine? Why is that off the table? And this is very interesting. The cardiologists now come on. And if you watch, their messaging now is all the same when these things happen. They start off with usually something along the lines of, first, I can assure you that this had nothing to do with a vaccine. And then what do they get into? They get into what they think it could be. And who are these people they're bringing on? Cardiologists, because they're heart problems and guess what as soon as they get into the area of expertise which is cardiology all of a sudden their absolute certainty disappears why because biology is messy there are exceptions to essentially every single rule in biology and so that's why when they start talking about the cardiology they'll they'll then say you know note all the time they'll say well in my opinion the the problem was most likely a right but then the, what will they say? They, you have to listen very carefully. They don't stop with that. They say, but we can't rule out the possibility of B, C, and D, and we'll have to wait and get the test results and see what the data tell us to really know uh, exactly what it was. So then the public have to ask themselves, why when a cardiologist moves into their realm of expertise, which is cardiology, can they come up with what they think is maybe most likely, but can never be certain? But when they start off the conversation in the area of vaccinology, where they have very little expertise, they have 100% certainty that they can rule out that as a problem. So that's very telling. So do I think it could be a problem? Yes, I do think it could be a major problem and it could be a contributor to these things. I can't tell you with certainty, but we need to acknowledge that it's a potential problem and we need to investigate it very quickly and very thoroughly because if that is the problem, then we know how to solve this too. Well, Dr. By Bridal, stopping I, the shots. Yes, and I want to go back to what you're talking about about the death counts because we do have a clip from GB uh, talking about specifically England and Wales and what they found. And we've also had different guests on our show talking about you know the worldwide deaths. But I'd like to roll this clip and then get your opinion on it. Sure. Why, why is there been no investigation into the excess deaths? Do you think? Well, that is quite positive, I think. If, if just to start from scratch, I suppose, so what excess deaths are is you can look at how many deaths you can see in the country in any particular week. And we tend to look at the pre-pandemic weeks now just to see what you've got. But 
part of the part of the explanation, Lawrence. There's a lot of explanations that need kind of deciphering all of this. We're not going to get a conclusive answer here, but but part of the explanation is we're in 2023 now. We're still comparing to say an average over the 2015 to 19 period. So if we take the last month, because there's been quite a large number of excess deaths the last month, we've seen about 11,000 more deaths in the last four weeks than what we saw over that average period of 2015 to 2019. Now, we do have a large cohort of people born after the Second World War, post-war baby boomers, hitting 75, 76, 77-year-old. That's where they would die. More of those means you'd expect more deaths. So of that 11,000 that we've seen the last four weeks, uh, Lawrence, about 4,000 of that is explained by this kind of demographic shift. But that still leaves a massive number of 7,000 excess deaths in the last four weeks. And if we tot up 2022 and look across the year there, and it was a tale of two halves. We saw deaths below average up to about week 18. And then from week 19 up to the first two weeks of 2022, you know, you're talking 23,000 deaths now. And I think you're right. You know, the government and Rishi Sunak, Steve Barkley, seem to be rather silent on this as if it's, let's not discuss what's going on. Let's, let's ignore. We used to get that daily press conference, you know, what's going on with the number of deaths within 28 days of a COVID test. But this one doesn't seem to be anything they want to touch and talk about. It is weird. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah thanks, Laura Lynn. So, yeah, that, that's a that's a, a very valid clip. I mean, he's 100% correct. And you see, he, he's trying to deal with this whole concept of people arguing that it's just the background, right? That we have a new established background. Um, even if there's a new established background, I mean, one of the things that he didn't mention, and like I said, he, he tried to cover that, but they still can't, this is the problem, especially in the UK, it's very obvious, they cannot hide the fact that there are excess deaths regardless. And the timing is very suspicious. So I, but what I would add is there could be additional um, excess deaths that are not directly related to say COVID-19 vaccines, but that are indirectly related due to all of the uh, um, draconian the mandates. lockdowns, the mandates, yes. because it is true, right? People, uh, people's diagnoses of cancer were delayed. And I can tell you as a, as a cancer researcher, you're dealing with a disease that, you know, the later you diagnose it, the later you implement a treatment, the worse the prognosis, right? The more difficult it is going to be to have a, a treatment be curative, um, et cetera, et cetera. People didn't get proper medical care. So that's still on uh, the, the policymakers, right? For being responsible for those. But it's the timing that's most concerning. And, and in that interview, the fellow that was being interviewed <laughs> highlighted that timing, how there's been this spike at the end of, uh, you know, starting right at the tail end of 2021 and and, uh, and into, uh, you know, and, and onwards. It still hasn't ended. And that, that's, that's what's scary. I think everybody kept thinking, okay, the excess deaths are going to come down, but they haven't, right? They have stayed elevated. And the problem with that timing is when the outbreak of SARS-CoV-2 began, we were a relatively naive population. We didn't have protection. We didn't have any injections to provide we fought to and i get by we not definitely not me i would say you know public health officials and government officials fought very hard against effective early treatment strategies that physicians had, had been developing and the reality is i mean this is just how it works with any infectious agent that 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 
for, that's novel. The worst comes at the beginning because you have your most susceptible people. You don't know what you're dealing with. You don't have the tools in hand. You know, there was no vaccine available. So if anything, if this was as deadly as what they claim, the excess mortality data should have skyrocketed in uh, early to mid 2021, right? But in fact, it's the opposite. People have been showing not a whole lot of difference, if any, in excess mortality during that time frame relative to prior to 2020, right? And the excess deaths have come precisely uh, after we started rolling out the, the COVID-19 vaccines. <laughs> so the timing to me is damning. And when it comes to this this data, uh, there's no question in my mind. And like I said, it, it, although it, it still is very uh, you know very contentious issue, the, the data is coming out and it will eventually come out. Had we had any kind of active monitoring, right? We've we have required or relied around the entire world on passive monitoring systems, of which the Canadian system is likely the worst at picking up safety signals, um, and passive monitoring systems underestimate the true extent of the problem to a substantial but difficult to define degree. Um, but I will tell you, uh, Laurelyn, I, I have looked at Pfizer's own data that they've published and the own data that, that they've published um, shows uh, substantial harms, you know, adverse events, uh, you know, that, that have occurred. So again, this is one of these things where I absolutely see a very strong signal pointing directly at the COVID-19 inoculations when it comes to the most plausible explanation for why we have these large excess deaths continuing to happen unabated ever since the very end of 2021 when the vaccine rollout began. And you've spoken extensively on how ridiculous, I guess, uh, you know, trying to vaccinate the kids. And Dr. Teresa Tam, I mean, she's she's just been relentless on how safe and effective vaccinating your children are. Uh, yeah, I, I can't emphasize that. That is when I when I first started speaking up, like like really expressing concerns publicly, it, it, it did really revolve around the children. You're absolutely correct. This is not a major problem for children at all. They they have been right from the get go. They have been made to be pawns in this adult game that we're playing. This and it's not a game. It's a it's a war between adults. And I see it as the public health and government officials have literally used our children as shields in this war that they're engaging with. Uh, and children should have been left out, out of it from the get-go. They shouldn't have been harshly locked down. They shouldn't have been forced to wear masks uh, and do all this remote learning. Children, there's no question, children have been permanently harmed. Uh, there's probably barely any children in the world who have not been harmed in some way, shape, or form from this, knowingly or unknowingly. Because I can tell you from an immunological perspective, when you isolate children the way we did for for so long, it has an impact on their immune system. So we're going to have young children who, even if nobody's currently aware of any particular issues that they have had, they may have a greater propensity towards having allergies and asthma and autoimmune diseases later in life because of what we did to them. So we're not going to know the full extent of the harms that we did, but we certainly know that the psychological harms and all kinds of other harms have been massive on our children. Um, and it, it it's just the problem has never been substantial enough to warrant 
what we did to our kids. And they don't need these vaccines. Parents need to understand they don't need these. Let me just put uh, something in perspective. I have been researching public health data all over the world because I've been asked by courts to serve as an expert witness in various court cases from Canada to as far away as New Zealand. When I look at the public health data uh, right now, they cannot hide in the data anymore. Uh, public health data has been highly massaged in very nefarious ways for the past few years. And even with that still happening, public health officials cannot hide the fact that these vaccines are doing more harm than good. And let me, let me just give you an example, uh, Laura Lynn. So for, for, for example, in a recent case, I was looking at the public health data in New Zealand, and it matches what was, what was being provided in Canada. But Canada stopped providing this data when it started showing so overwhelmingly the harms. But in New Zealand, they still have. They don't show the graphs. They don't show it in an easy-to-digest format, but they provide all the numbers. So I looked at the numbers, and this is – people have to understand. Why did it always appear for the longest time like this was a, quote, pandemic of the vaccinated? Because you know what they did, Laura Lynn? It, is when they, when they showed cases of COVID-19 by vaccination status, they started right from when the very first case was identified in a country. We did that in Canada. They did it in the United States. They did it in the United Kingdom. They did it in Australia. They did it in New Zealand. And people have to understand, the very first cases that were identified were, like, like in Canada, it was very early in 2020. And so what happens is there was a huge period of time where there were no shots available, right? There right. were no, none of these, vac quotes, vaccines. <laughs> and that means for the entire population, every single person getting COVID-19 or being diagnosed with COVID-19, was that was being attributed to an unvaxxed person, right? Uh, so every case could only be attributed to the unvaccinated. And then there was the rollout phase, which was very long and protracted. So again, a large period of time where huge numbers of people were not vaccinated. All those cases were being attributed to the unvaccinated. So that is why for the longest time, it appeared like this was a pandemic of the unvaccinated. They did not start at a point where approximately half the population was unvaccinated and approximately half was vaccinated. That would be the fair comparison starting from that point onwards. No. So all the data are biased heavily towards showing cases among the unvaccinated. So keeping that in mind, Laura Lynn, this is very important. So it, right now, because I just did this research like I fin about a week ago, so I can confirm it's absolutely cutting edge. In New Zealand right now, they have 90% of their population has received at least one dose, okay, of a COVID-19 quotes vaccine. 90%, 95% of all the cases that have occurred throughout the entire pandemic, so including when nobody in the population was vaccinated, 95% of those cases now are linked to the vaccinated. So just so people understand, 90% of New Zealanders are vaccinated, but 95% of all cases are attributed to the vaccinated. So what that means in short is COVID-19 cases are being disproportionately, have been, disproportionately diagnosed among the vaccinated. And that is with built into it, like I said, Laura Lynn, a huge bias towards showing the reverse for the vaccinated. So you see what I mean? So even it's got so bad that even using data that's so heavily biased, 
they can't hide it anymore. And the only way that you can explain that is if there is more harm occurring. And what's very interesting, I like, I like to lean on the peer-reviewed scientific literature uh, because, because preprint articles, sometimes they don't get published. Uh, sometimes they get published uh, and, and with slightly different messages. But I have to point out um, a group from the Cleveland Clinic in the United States. This was a group that was pushing the narrative right for the longest time but their own data now seems to have awakened them they have a preprint article out right now that people need to look at because it is scary and you need to ask yourself if you're going to keep pushing these uh, upon your children if you're thinking about giving your child the first two doses or whether you're thinking of giving them especially if you're thinking of giving them the first second or more boosters the data are frightening laura lynn it shows a perfect dose response relationship in exactly the reverse direction that you would predict if a vaccine is having any benefit whatsoever. Meaning that once you normalize for the different numbers of people in each group, it goes like this. So this is a this is a absolute fair comparison because it's looking at, at data that are completely normalized, like I said, for the pr proportion of people within each group. Um, because let's, you know, there, there are relatively few people have not received these jobs now. This is how it goes. The group in which cases are being diagnosed uh, with the lowest frequency is the unvaccinated group. The group that has the next highest number of cases have received the first series of the vaccines, right? So dose one and two. The ones that have the next highest cases are those that got one booster or three doses altogether. And then if you look at those that have got the uh, two boosters or more, they are the highest. It's literally going in completely the wrong direction such that I, I have I can very definitively because I've seen this data now all over that data research data matches what we're seeing in the even in with the biases built into the current public health data so this is my conclusion that I would give your readers and, and anybody and I'm quite confident in this now if you want to reduce your chances or somebody else's chances of getting a diagnosis of COVID-19 take no more shots. I mean, I would say you want to be in the unvaxxed group. Unfortunately, we can't reverse the vaccination. So people who've already got those doses can't bring themselves back down to the lower risk groups, but they can prevent themselves from going on. My concern is this data actually has it, uh, Laura Lynn, at you know the, the group that's the highest, they call it two plus two, uh, boosters, right? So uh, there's people who are up to uh, their third, fourth, and fifth boosters now. Um, they don't actually differentiate. My concern is if we start differentiating those over time, that they'll continue to go up. So people, this is the ridiculous thing. I never thought I'd be saying this, right? A, a vaccine, if it's doing nothing, you should see no impact on the disease whatsoever. If it's having any benefit, you should see a substantial benefit in the context of the disease. This is a case where if you actually want to protect yourself from getting COVID, Take no more shots. Oh, my goodness. Oh. And can I say actually something else very important, Laura Lynn? Because yes. this is very important. Because <laughs> I know immediately what people are going to say. They're going to say, okay, but it's not, uh, we've been told, right? The, the goalposts have been moved 125 kilometers now from where they were three years ago. And we're going to ignore the fact that the public health officials told us that these vaccines prevented infection and prevented transmission. That was the basis for the rollout. That's the only basis on which you can possibly justify forcing people to take a shot to protect their neighbor. Because if it doesn't achieve those goals, 
it's useless forcing people to take it to protect their neighbor because the only benefit, if it doesn't stop prevent transmission and prevent other people from getting disease, the only benefit is a personal benefit. So they promised that, and that was the justification for forcing it on everybody. And then, the, but they've changed the messaging now to, you know, because they can't hide the fact it does not stop COVID-19. It's in fact making it worse now. And, the, and so they're hanging on to these tiny threads, which is, but it dampens the severity of the disease. So you still take it. The argument is, well, even if it's increasing, the, you know, maybe the cases a little bit, increasing susceptibility, even if you accept that, or we accept that it just does nothing, at least it's going to protect you from severe disease. And this is where I want to point out to your listeners, Laura Lynn, Pfizer's own, people have to understand, Pfizer's own clinical phase three clinical trial data. They published it. And they published this quite some time ago. Um, and it is, their, their own evidence is quite damning, especially in the context of this new messaging. Now, I want to point out, I don't think it was Pfizer um, that's been pushing this concept of it dampening disease. For some reason, it's been our public health officials and government officials overselling Pfizer's product on their behalf. Because when you look at this data, and you have to look at it very carefully, there's the paper, what I call the paper proper, as it was published in New England Journal of Medicine. It was a six-month update on... Their, their phase three clinical trial data. So what it did is summarize the clinical trial data that they had accrued uh, up to six months into the trial, right? And these trials are to run for about two and a half years. And when they publish that, um, there's data that's in the paper, but more importantly, there's a supplementary appendix, which is chock full of very important data. The, uh, so this is the important thing, Laura Lynn, when you're hearing from physicians, the average physician does not read a scientific paper from start to finish. In fact, a lot of physicians have difficulty reading scientific papers, depending on where their comfort level is, because you have to be an expert in a specific field to really understand the methodologies that are being used, the terminology, and so on. What the average physician does is they look at the abstract and they look at the conclusions of the paper. You're sort of, what's the take home message? As a, an expert, you never go by what those messages are because you, you actually look, the first thing I do is I look at the materials and methods. Are they valid? And then what you do, a lot of people don't realize this, the results section of a paper comes before the discussion section. The discussion section is where authors try and place their studies data into the context of the bigger picture in the scientific world. But the results section precedes that. And the results section has no overlay of personal opinion. There's no interpretation by the authors of what the data means. And that's important. That is so as a scientist, you can go through the results and you formulate your own opinions. Then you read the discussion. And then you can see what the authors thought of it, right? And you take their, their thoughts into consideration. But this is the process you have to go through. And so very few people, when they look at a scientific paper, ever look at supplementary data. It's separate from the paper. You have to go to the website, and it's a little link hidden way, way down at the very bottom of the web page. And when you pull this out, Laura Lynn, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut to the chase here. This is what, so people, again, this is not me saying it. Um, don't shoot the messenger. If you've got a problem, you go talk to Pfizer about these results. You can go to the Pfizer six-month uh, clinical trial update on their vaccine, published in New England Journal of Medicine. You just do a quick Google search. You should be able to find it easily. And you pull out, but you have to pull out the paper and especially the supplementary appendix. Click on that link at the very bottom of the webpage. And when you do, Laura Lynn, what you will find is at, at the six-month update point, and this is important, the six-month update was the point that was the data used by the United States um, Food and Drug Administration to provide full approval to the Pfizer vaccine. 
that data shows it show it shows a statistically significant but tiny very tiny benefit in terms of preventing um, uh, severe cases of COVID-19 a 0.1 percent absolute benefit very tiny it shows a much larger uh, risk of adverse events all adverse events but this is the key thing I'm gonna cut right to the chase guess what happened in terms they looked at hospitalizations and they looked at deaths the group that got the vaccine there were slightly fewer people it was almost exactly identical but 22,000 21,000 and 21,000 in each group vaccinated and unvaccinated it was slightly less than the unvaccinated so there's no way you can construe this data any other way do you know where the most hospitalizations occurred Laura Lynn it occurred wow. in the vaccinated group now it was not statistically significant but this is the thing so I would say that it was higher in the vaccinated group but um but I but I always go by statistics because that makes sure we remain objective. So although it was higher, it was not statistically significantly higher than the unvaccinated group. And so in simple terms, that means there was no benefit of the vaccine in terms of reducing the risk of people's hospitalization if they were in the vaccinated group. Now let's go to the deaths. There were a total of 29 deaths reported in the study. And do you know where those deaths occurred? 15 occurred in the vaccinated group. So again, we're talking about all-cause mortality. That's what we're talking about here in their own study. 15 deaths in the vaccinated group and 14 deaths in the unvaccinated group. So again, you don't have to be a statistician to ask yourself, is um, 14 in the, in the unvaccinated group statistically significantly higher than 15? Obviously not. Um, so again, no, there was one more death in the vaccinated group. Again, it's not statistically significantly higher. But the take-home message is there was zero benefit of the vaccine in reducing all-cause deaths. Now, to get this, a lot of people don't realize that Pfizer, they stopped the control group. We, we have no proper... The, the, the trial's continuing for the two and a half years because they have to. The control group was stopped at four months into the trial. And because they enrolled people at different time points, the median time from when somebody received the vaccine to... The longest time point when we have for which we have safety data is two months so we have two months worth of safety data but this is the thing what happened at that four month period they vaccinated the entire placebo control group okay um and you know what happened then when they followed them up to the six month time point three more people died in the vac in the original vaccinated group right and two people two more people died from the placebo group after they were vaccinated so that adds five more deaths to the vaccinated group making it um 20 versus 14 at that point right deaths again now as a scientist i have to say we won't know because they dropped the control group it's possible that those two people who got who died after they received the vaccine may have died without the vaccine had they had they remained in a placebo control group but the whole point of this is nobody can spin that data in any other way there was clearly no benefit in reducing hospitalization or deaths so that's pfizer's own data so there is no justification at all. The cases are higher, and this whole concept that these things somehow cannot prevent infection, cannot stop transmission, but somehow can dampen disease, I don't know of any immunological mechanism that would explain 
how that works. And I don't feel like I have to come up with it because I am quite confident in saying these vaccines um, it, if are making people more susceptible to getting COVID-19 and they do nothing to dampen the severity in terms of hospitalizations, ICU admissions, and deaths. Those latter three things that our public health officials have been grasping onto as the last, last thread, that's all a facade of non-transparently presented public health data. It's not the reality, the scientific <sighs> reality. And the final thing I just want to say about the Pfizer's data, about those deaths, Laura Lynn, interestingly, um, when you look at cardiac, so this, this, this actually interfaces nicely with what you started off with, with the uh, you know, um, athletes collapsing and, and usually with cardiac issues. Do you know that when you look at the, uh, those, um, the, the initial set of deaths uh, in that trial, nine of them were nine of them in the vaccinated group were associated with car the cardiac related deaths and five were associated with cardiac deaths in the control group so that's almost double um, and so again and so it isn't it interesting it appears like there was an early safety signal for cardiac related deaths in pfizer's own clinical trial very early on by the six month time point Unbelievable. I um, when I look at all of this and everything that you're revealing, I'm I'm just wondering how does our country or any country not have more information being released to the media? Um, and then we've had that newly released Project Veritas uh, undercover video that's just been released in those last like 20 hours. I don't know if you've seen it yet. I would love to play. They have this guy. Jordan Tristan Walker of Pfizer, director of research and development, saying some astonishing things. Could could I let you have a look? It's, at yeah, this? yeah, 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 a, yeah that, that, that's a bombshell, and, and I can. I'm certainly happy to comment on. Yes, your your viewers have to see that. Yes. Um, okay. Let, yeah, let me show it to them, and then I'll like. hear hear what you have to say. Okay. Pfizer ultimately is thinking about mutating COVID. Well, that is not what we say to the public. No, don't tell anyone this. You got to publish on time. You got to publish on time. We're exploring like now. You know how the virus keeps mutating. Yeah. Well, one of the things we're exploring is like why don't we just mutate it ourselves so we can we can create undefeatably developed new vaccines, right? So we have to do that. If we're going to do that, though, there's a risk of like, as you could imagine, no one wants to be having a pharma company mutating viruses. Be like very controlled to make sure that this virus that you mutate doesn't create something that, like you know goes everywhere. Something crazy. It's the way that the virus started in Wuhan. To be honest, like it's, it makes no sense if this virus popped out of nowhere. Like, yeah, I know. Meet Jordan Tristan Walker, a director of research and development strategic operations and mRNA scientific planning at Pfizer. It sounds like gain of function to me. I don't know. It's a little bit different. I think it's different. It's like there's. It's definitely not gain of function. It sounds like it is. I mean, it's okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, directed evolution is very different. Yeah. Well, you're not supposed to do gain of function research with the viruses. Like, yeah. They recommend not. But you do, like, these, like, selected directional mutations to try to see if you can make more potent. Yeah. So there, there is research on the line about that. I don't know how that's going to work. There might not be any more outbreaks. Just like, Jesus Christ. The gentleman seems to have 
absolutely no moral compass at all. I revolving door for all government officials. It's pretty good for the industry, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> it's bad for everyone else in America. Why is it bad for everybody else? Because if the regulators who have to approve our drugs know that once they stop being a regulator, they want to go work for the company, then I gotta be as hard for the company. You know, as well. If this is the quality of individuals within Pfizer that are making these huge decisions that uh, risk global public health, it's profoundly corrupt. Wow. What what's what do you have to say about about all that? Yeah, it, it, it's definitely quite, uh, quite the bombshell and, and quite telling. Now, this is the thing, assuming that it is all authentic. And I, I have no reason to believe that it isn't. Um, the only question in my mind is, is this uh, Jordan Walker really the in, in the position in Pfizer that that he's claiming that to be in, in this directorship directorship position. Um, and he might not. He might not I, have his job for long. Um, oh yeah, yeah, I wouldn't think so yeah. <laughs> if he, if he was with Pfizer. Yeah. Now, with that said, but again, it's, it's interesting. So I, I've been talking to lots of people about this. I, I contacted Mike Eden, a former um, vice uh, president of of Pfizer, <laughs> to, to see what he thought of it. He, you know, he could neither authenticate it because he doesn't work with Pfizer anymore, but he had no reason either to to think that it wasn't uh, real. Uh, I, I I trust, you know, the pro people running Project Veritas are are people of integrity. I, I trust them and their integrity. Um, I, I, I've talked to, to people, seen their, their comments. I, I tend to agree with Robert Malone and Peter McCullough had the same kind of messaging. That if anything, what I'm surprised about is that you know, I, I sort of watch the video and think, really, this is a director of scientific development for Pfizer. Um, it, it appears, based on documents that have been presented publicly, uh, that have been made public, that he is on the fourth tier uh, relative to Bourla, who's the CEO. In other words, if true, this fellow's boss um, is second down from the, from Bourla himself, the CEO. So that would be a, a position of substantial um you know, uh, authority uh, and influence. And to me, honestly, so it's interesting, based on where he did his degree, uh, I had a colleague who, who looked and did find some publications and re the record of him being present at, I think it was, I can't remember if it was Texas, University in Texas. But anyways, they're, they're, the, the university that he was affiliated with, we, there, there were actually two Dr. Walkers, and one seemed to fit his profile and, and, and be a younger individual. Honestly, the, from where he, when he was at university doing his training and looking at the, the, this pretty small publication record, I would say really he's a pretty junior scientist to be in that kind of position. So there's, so if, if he is in that position and, and, and what he's saying is, is an accurate representation of what's going on with Pfizer, it's completely damning for Pfizer. Like that is a company that should not be allowed to continue to conduct business. Now, um, and now regardless of what he said, if if he's in that position in Pfizer, I have a concern like why are such junior people? I honestly, I, I get the impression that he is not like he, you know, it, it seems like he's a bit tipsy there. Clearly he, he the, the, the journalist has got him to, you know, think that they're kind of on a friendly basis, but still he just doesn't come across to me as the, the a person with the incredible experience and expertise that you would expect in a position like that. But as like Dr. Peter McCullough has been pointing out, 
there's a lot of people and great positions of influence who probably don't have the experience and training to be where they are, um, or you know, or, or aren't functioning uh, um, uh, to such a high level that they should be in the position that they are. Um, with one baby extreme example that that I know McCullough used of being Joe Biden, right? I mean, Joe Biden, <laughs> his, his actual ability to to perform some of his functions right now for whatever reason. Uh, and if it's an illness, then I, you know, I just wish the guy, w you know, the people around him would give him the proper advice, right? Because I've, I've had people in my family, for example, with developed dementia, right? And, yes. and you know, so, so I, I, I'm cognizant of that. But the reality is, many people question, you know, is he fit to be in office? So, you know what I mean? And so, but if you can have that in, as, in the office of the president, then it doesn't necessarily surprise me that people like this might be in these other positions. And this is the thing, if it's true, he, he's trying to get away from the gain of function, but then he talks about how they're manipulating proteins. Regardless of how you manipulate the proteins, whether it's artificially or you do it through a natural mechanism, like you, you this directed evolution where you, you apply selective pressures that cause a virus to change, ultimately you're, you're artificially forcing the virus to change and the goal according to what he said seems to be because he talked about making these proteins more potent more 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 dangerous um that's you end up in the same place as with what people might traditionally think as as of as of as gain as function research where you artificially you know maybe you do computer modeling and then artificially insert mutations to make something work better you end up at the same place is the whole point. You end up at the same place. And and in fact, with the directed evolution they're talking about, you can potentially end up at places you didn't expect. And he alludes to that, right? Um, that that if, they're, if they were to do that, they, the last thing they would want is to create another outbreak. And so what I find compelling about this overall is uh, what they're talking about. And he in, inferred with some of his wording there that some of this research may have already been initiated. So if true, that is very dangerous research that puts the entire world's population at risk of having exactly what we just have it happen with the Wuhan variant, you know, a, a, a man-made virus um, get out of the Wuhan lab. Um, secondly, he openly admits uh, to this revolving door uh, policy with health regulators. And I'd really like to see health regulators respond to this, right? Because it implicates all health regulators, um, which is the idea that, you know, should they give them gentle, you know, easy reviews when they put give put in their applications to get a new drug or medical product considered, um, there's going to be these very uh, cushy jobs available for them, right? Uh, after, should they so wish, and vice versa, right? That uh, there's lots of people, and, and, and we have many examples, especially in the United States. My goodness, so many examples of people going from their regulatory agency to big pharma, cushy positions in big pharma, and back to their regulatory agency, and then even after that, back to big pharma again. Uh, and so this is a massive conflict of interest. He gleefully, you know, acknowledges that there doesn't seem to be any concern given to real uh, human public health, you know, during this interview. Um, you know, all of it is very astonishing. And he alludes to in the interview that uh, that Pfizer does um, feel like there's really no other logical explanation for SARS-CoV-2 other than it being a man-made virus, right? Um, so these to me are huge, you know, huge admissions. Now, for those of us who've been following, you know, Pfizer, it's not like 
none of this really surprises me knowing Pfizer and Pfizer's history necessarily. But for the per like to me, the important thing about this, and this is where I, I hope that the media and or people involved with with the law can compel Pfizer, right, or, or some way get non refute irrefutable evidence that this is legit. The guy's legit. The position that he's apparently in is legit, um, because if it is what the power of this video is, you know, if you place this in front of the naysayers, the people who have been attacking people like yourself and me incessantly for the past three years, saying that we're misinformation spreaders, right? Nothing we've said is correct. We're all we're all just being conspiracy theories, right? If you place if you place that video in front of these individuals, uh, along with irrefutable evidence that this guy is who he claims to be, um, and, and, and then, you know, then they're left with they have how are they going to refute that what is their rebuttal going to be about that they can't then claim that we're spreading misinformation this is a this would be a pfizer a director in pfizer uh saying this and putting it putting these multiple horrific messages together right in front of people's very eyes right in this short little sequence um so yeah so that's where i'm at so i'm at the position where I have found no compelling evidence to suggest it's not true. I have found lots of compelling evidence to suggest it's absolutely legit. Um, I, I have written a Substack article about it, but I'll also tell you if somebody can show clear data that this is somehow fake, um, you know, really fake news, um, I'll take down my Substack article, you know, I'll retract it. Uh, but that's where I'm at. I believe, you know, I have no reason to believe that it is, you know, that's anything other than um valid this and accurate this video thank you very much for all that explanation because uh i appreciate i just love oh you can call dr yeadon and you know dr peter mccullough and and uh you know we've almost had dr yeadon on a couple of times and then he wasn't well and so now we're trying to rebook yes. him so i hope to have him very shortly uh th this is incredible what do you make of the whole medical field you have been so attacked for just speaking the truth and following the science and i don't know what your uh you know where where it's all at right now but i just want to thank you from the canadian people a lot of people just thanking you and thanking you in the comments and consider you a man among men a doctor among doctors a, a scientist among scientists for, for speaking the truth endlessly, but you've had to face a real attack from the authorities. Yeah, it, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, I, you know, it's funny. I, I said that, I guess when the real attack started on me, Laura Lynn, which caught me off guard was when I spoke the truth about, you know, it's remarkable. I go back a, a year and a half ago now to May of 2021. <laughs> And there was this infamous radio interview with, with Alex Pearson, you know, and bless her soul. She did absolutely nothing wrong. She was doing her job as a journalist. She asked me a question um, and it was about uh, deaths due to uh, myocarditis that were occurring at abnormal frequencies among young men in Israel. And she simply asked me the question, could there be a link between the mRNA vaccines and these, you know, deaths due to myocarditis? And I, and in that interview, you know, what I see now, looking back retrospectively, because I guess the world wasn't prepared for, you know, the, uh, the truth coming from coming from an expert who could who could see things. To me, this was up. You know, when you're a real expert, you can see problems emerging from relatively sparse data sets that are hard to find. You got to dig for them and put them together. But to me, it was obvious at the time. 
And, and three things I said that were that caused my world to blow up. <laughs> One was that I, I thought there might be a link between the mRNA vaccines and the myocarditis. Now it's on all the vaccine labels, of course, right? All proven. The second one was that uh, the vaccine didn't stay at the injection site. And people misinterpreted a lot there. I, I wasn't like surprised that the, these lipid nanoparticles that they inject don't stay at the injection site. I, you know, when you follow this technology, if you follow this technology, that's all it's been ever been designed to do is spread far and wide throughout the body. It was originally designed to, to be used as gene therapies and as drug de delivery systems to treat things like brain cancers and Alzheimer's to cross the most challenging anatomical barriers like the blood brain barrier. So what had surprised me about finding out about the wide systemic distribution that actually matched all the historical data. What surprised me is that I was being told constantly through public messaging that these vaccines acted like traditional va vaccines, stayed at the injection site, that they did not spread throughout the body. Um, and so I had in my mind, you know what? So they, they must have done some proprietary tweaking that's completely changed how this technology has always behaved um, such that now they stay at the injection site. And so what I was shocked about was, you know, it wasn't like it was, to me, it was stunning data. Anybody knows the history of, of the development of this technology, knows that's how it had always worked. Um, but so what's, what I was shocked about was that for me, it was the first time where I saw, I have been lied to repeatedly, um, this messaging that these things don't leave the, inje the injection site is completely false. Those are lies coming from public health officials and government officials. That is what shocked me. Um, but at the time, so apparently that was super controversial, even though the systemic distribution matches the decade of research leading up to this uh, technology. Uh, and of course, now since people have published everywhere, uh, like it's crazy and, and they're taking, you know, so now we've seen it, people have proven it goes to the heart. People have proven, I mean, a recent, uh, great peer reviewed published article showed these mRNA vaccines are getting to breast milk, right? Women are feeding these mRNA vaccines unknowingly, regardless of the concentration. And we don't know what a safe concentration is. So forget about those people who say, well, it seems like it's very low because then you ask them, well, what is a safe concentration? We don't know, especially for a self amplifying product right? The, the baby takes up the mRNA and it gets into any cells in their oral cavity or whatever, then their cells are going to amplify that mRNA into larger quantities of spike protein. But yeah, we're, you know, so there's all these publications, even the CEO of Moderna in an interview um, several months ago was openly talking about how they've learned so much about how their vaccine works in the context of, of um, myocarditis. And yeah, the spike protein seems to get to the heart and some people, you know, CEOs are even openly talking about this, but it was so controversial at the time. And then the other one, the final one was the, uh, you know, I referred to the spike protein as a potential toxin because if it could get systemically distributed, I knew there were multiple mechanisms of potential harm if it didn't stay at the injection site. Now we're up to about 20 different known potential mechanisms of harm of this protein, right? So, I, and yet not one person has apologized to me. And I have to say, uh, worse than that, Laura Lynn, the, uh, the attacks then were weathering. The attacks really have not relented. I, I, I'll just share with you very briefly, just yes. an example, uh, generically. Um, in, in social media recently, um, police got quite concerned, okay? Because what happened is public messaging went out about me um, from other scientists, you know, claiming to be experts on these vaccines. And they basically identified to the public that I am spreading misinformation the three three dangerous messages that when combined you'll see that how, how they become dangerous okay so so they they first named me right so they named me then they claimed i'm spreading misinformation and then the same uh um 
social media message. They also indicated that I have zero accountability, right? I'm accountable to nobody. Um, and that my messaging is causing deaths of many people. Um, and then they even uh, had a picture of me, right? So it literally read like an, an old, you know, wanted ad from, from, from the old west right literally you know here here's the picture of the person here's their name here's the crime you know spreading spewing misinformation Everything it's causing people address. to die yeah and every and and and, and for anybody who's you know and it's kind of like hint hint nudge nudge you know what if you want a net savings of many people's lives make this guy accountable in some way you know or possibly even take him out it, what bugged me is when that happened uh once again i had to go through security training um, I, my family had to go through security training. I had uh, to start uh, picking uh, or driving my uh, children to and from school again instead of them walking, especially my, my youngest son has Down syndrome, so he's quite trusting of everybody um, and, and therefore potentially a high risk of being taken advantage of. You know, the impact has continued on my family to this very day. And what bugs me, I have never spoken anything but the truth and I have never spoken any truths without having solid scientific evidence to provide it. And yet every single person who has ever accused me of misinformation, not one of them will ever talk to me. Not one of my colleagues at my university will talk to me. They would never come to my office. They won't talk to me on the phone. They won't communicate via email. I can't get anybody who accuses me of providing misinformation to talk to me and yet i think you've seen interview after interview after interview i won't say things definitively if if i can't be definitive about it um, i always defer to the literature um, and I, I can show people that i know what i'm talking about and i can show them the science if they give me the opportunity and i don't believe that anybody should be accusing anybody else of misinformation uh period, but especially until they have interacted with that person and given that person a real face-to-face, back-and-forth, real-time opportunity to address whatever concerns that you have. Because you know what, Lurlin, if you are a real expert, uh, you, you can tell who the real experts are, and you can tell who the fake ones are if you have a real-time interaction between the two people. Not where you can then walk away you know, from some social media message and spend a week looking for some very obscure piece of data that seems to support your position, right? No, when you're going in real-time back-and-forth, Weaknesses in your expertise get exposed immediately, and strengths in your expertise get exposed, uh, are, are, are on display, right? So, but this is not happening. So to me, the, the whole problem is has been censorship and this change in how science is practiced where people accusing others of misinformation or who feel they have the right to define what misinformation is will never allow the people they're accusing to have an opportunity to, to do this. And when I've been walked through the fact checks by reporters, I've been able to address them all. I've been able to explain the science. I've had people say, authors of some of those papers uh, that you were referring to in that interview uh, actually disagreed with you. Yes, and I can show you how those authors who are not vaccinologists didn't even realize the own limitations of their own data, nor how it could be extended to these other concerns. Right. And if I have the opportunity, I can show I, I so put it this way, Laura Lynn, I can address every single fact check that's out there, every single criticism of the messaging. And the reality is the avalanche of data that has come out now has shown that myself and all the others that have been under attack, the Peter McCullough's, you know, the Paul Alexander's, the uh, Robert Malone's, I mean, you name them. Right. Uh, the data is showing that by and large, our messages were 100 percent correct. And, and, and what it shows is, you know what, if you're a real expert. The real sign of an expert is foresight. With limited data, 
you can follow that that limited science and you can see where it's going that's a true expert a true expert has foresight and all of the, the, us that were attacked now when you look back retrospectively had foresight you know it's as simple as that and, um, and people... but, but yeah the attacks continue so it's hard yes. so to this day i i i i if I if I had to go back and change things, would I do differently? No. I'll tell you honestly. After that happened, after that interview, and I was really under a, a sort of immediate harsh attack. It, it took a long time for me to accommodate to this life of new immense chronic stress. Right. Um, I have found peace. Uh, well, that's largely due to my faith, but I have found peace um, for for a while now, over half a year at least. I, right. I've actually found peace in the midst of this storm, but. Uh, and I, I had a conversation with my wife, I'll be totally honest with you. Uh, after that interview, um, you know, I said, maybe I should just shut up. Maybe I should just go quiet, keep my head down, look after myself, you know, look after my, you know, my own job um, and, you know, and continue on like I had been. Um, but, you know, we decided as hard as it was, it was going to be like, no, we're going to speak the truth. Others are, deserve to speak the truth. Uh, or to hear the truth, and, um, and and there's harm being done to people, and I couldn't just stand by. So my career is—I'll be frank—my career has suffered permanent harm. Per a scientist's ability to publish and get grants to, to conduct their science—it is based on reputation, right? And as long as my reputation has been smeared as bad as it is, and is still being smeared actively. Right, my, my biggest selling point as a as a scientist when it comes to conventional funding and so on is is gone. Um, and, and there's other aspects that I don't want to get into, but other harms that have occurred that have caused per, yeah, permanent damage to my uh, career. Um, there'll be a, this this will have an impact on me for the rest of my life, and it's had an impact on my family as well, who have also been strong. And if it weren't for them being so supportive, I probably still wouldn't be standing here, you know, today talking about these kind of things. And I certainly wouldn't have the peace that I have uh, with it, despite all these hassles. But yes, yeah, so I'll be honest. I, I wouldn't change anything. Um, I think speaking the truth. And, and the truth based on solid science is is the right thing to do. I put it this way: I can sleep with myself at night. I, I have to deal with many things during the daytime uh, that I never had to ever before in my life, but I can probably have the most peaceful sleeps at night that I've ever had in my life as well. And I try and look at the positive things. I have met my network of colleagues looks completely different, um, but it's wonderful. Like you said, I can call up or, or contact uh, Mike Eden. I can contact Robert Malone. I mean, the new collegial network that I have uh, been able to establish I, I, is second to none, right? Um, the, the, the friendships that I had that really revealed themselves, proved to be solid, legitimate friendships have just strengthened even further. And I've got new friends, right? And I think if we all try and look at it that way, there are some very good things that have happened. Um, and yeah, but, uh, but I will still be spending a great deal of time, you know, sorting out the harm and the damage and trying to repair it. And and it's sort of just the middle of the story. I, I might say to you, uh, you could become. I think this could, you know, there's a couple ways this is going to go. Either it's it's going to be too hard for them to keep harming and keep paying into it. I mean, we have this article about how they've put so much money into the universities and propagandized everything. We know they've paid the media off. Uh, we know that they've done all of these incredibly bad things. Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada reveals uh, basically um, 
that that they have encouraged vaccine confidence in Canada, and certainly without after everything that we've just said right now, uh, with no uh, good reason at all. And they've paid thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars into it. They paid thousands yes. of dollars for pastors in this country to promote the vaccine from their pulpits, and many many did. Yes. You know, God help them on Judgment Day. And then they've they've paid yeah off. that's a good one uh, yeah yeah I think we do have to call call them out like everybody else yeah yes. the, the, our churches um, largely disappointed Very uh, much. during this pandemic they they I, I couldn't believe how little moral backbone so many had I, I I'll be totally honest with you there Laura yeah, that I um, I found it hard I, I I was segregated in my own church. You know, there, 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 there were hardships. That, I mean, there were a lot of there was a lot of fractional relationships, but I couldn't actually believe I was actually physically segregated in, in my own church. It was the most bizarre thing at one point because I could stand uh, in the uh, entranceway of my church and there's two doors. Right. I could literally stand equidistant between the two. I could reach out and touch either one. One's to this gym where I play, for example, ball hockey with uh, with a men's ball hockey group or basketball with my son. Um, and and then the other one is the sanctuary, right? And as long as I was a mask, I could go into the sanctuary, um, you know, but I but there was a period where I, I couldn't go into the gym anymore. I, I wasn't welcome. And I, I literally, I remember trying to, to almost as a, as a way of protesting, the first night that I was not allowed to go in the gym, I showed up and I put my face to the glass, right? Looking in um, with all these guys that I just played with the previous week and have, been, have for years, right? And there were a couple others along with me who uh, weren't allowed in because we didn't have the passports, right? I could I could show proof. This is crazy. I could show proof of naturally acquired immunity. I uh, even show even show it to my university. I knew as a, as an expert that I was better protected than anybody in that gym, and I, I showed my face to kind of say like, it, really, guys? And I almost thought like, you know what? If it was me, honestly, I, I probably I wouldn't have run the group because I'm not going. You know, within the context of a church organization, I I don't want that to be the message that hey, we're a church. You know, yeah, come to our church, but you know. If, push comes to shove, we'll segregate those that we need to. So, yeah, I, I hear you, Laura Lynn. It's I, I've been disappointed with we had so the, many of our institutions. Oh, oh, they had, they asked people to sit on separate, right here in Abbotsford, British Columbia. They had the vaccinated um, Christmas play and the unvaccinated Christmas play. Uh, another church had, could you sit over here in your unvaccinated bubble, you know, and and over here. And then some people had their children up there stating how proud they were to be one of the first to go and get that child's vaccine. And it's like, wow, do you trust your government so much so that you would not trust God's healing? Are, are we not the ones that believe that God heals? Uh, and, and, and protects us. Psalms 91, the plague will come near them, but it shall not come near us. So instead yes. of doing that, we went, oh, yep, let's take right away this, you know, the Fauci, uh, you know, vaccine and and not not stand up, not have common sense or critical thinking. It's gone from the church and they got money. I, I mean, it's just like a Judas yes. Iscariot move. Yes. Yeah. And I worry how many Very pastors sad. were worried about uh, their, their enrollment. The fact was, at the end of the day, those who in the very heat of things, like when things were at the worst, 
there were relatively few people who were standing up against this. And if it comes down to basic economics, I worry about how many churches looked at it as, you know, we don't want to lose our major attendance here. We don't want our attendance to drop too much, right? Uh, in fact, you mentioned universities. Universities are in big trouble right now. It's interesting. Universities are now competing very hard to recruit students because education was such a bad experience. Even for those, I mean, it didn't matter whether uh, students got the vaxes or, you know, and did all the masking and all that or not. They were forced online for the vast majority of the time. The, the quality of education was poor. They were paying the same amount of money, getting a fraction of the quality of education. And so enrollment has plummeted, right? Now they're desperate. Uh, the budgets are horrible. They overspent massively on all the COVID-19 policies that were unnecessary uh, by and large. And now their enrollments have dropped. And now we have these massive deficits. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if some of our colleges and universities go bankrupt in the coming, yes. you know, uh, year, years ahead. The, the, the deficits are, are, are massive that, that university and colleges are facing at the moment. Um, and yeah, so they're competing. So it's interesting. In Ontario, we had one college and one university that were hanging on uh, with all their might to the vaccine policy. Uh, and it carried on into uh, this, this current academic year, right? So last fall, they had it going to the fall. Interestingly, they both dropped it. Um, and of course, they're never going to reveal the true terms. But I know, I, I know, being a member and being involved in the meetings, I know what the financial issues are looking like here. And the universities, like I said, are desperately competing now to recruit the relatively small pools of students who have remained keen on paying lots of money for a largely remote education. And um, it was because of that, I believe, that they dropped it. That was the only reason, right? It's always, it's usually, it's all, you follow the money. And sadly, it's everything. So even with these universities, they didn't drop the mandates for the right reason, uh, I believe, although they won't admit it. I believe they dropped it because they knew that if they had these policies still in place, they would be the least competitive of all of our secondary or post-secondary uh, institutions at being able to recruit new students and bring all of the um, uh, tuition money with them, plus transfer payments that accompany each student that enrolls in a university, transfer payments from the government. Unbelievable. I, you know, and it, it affects me personally. I have a member in my family who uh, wants to be a doctor. And actually, this uh, precious young person has no idea of, of the facts you've just laid out here because we're not even teaching uh, these, these recruits uh, to be doctors in our universities the truth. The, the media is silent on it. Of course, they're paid off. And so we have an epic showdown between good and evil right now, I would call it. I don't know what else to call it when when good information is being stopped and science is being shut down and and uh, obliterated from any public discourse. No debates, no public debates. No one will do that like you were talking about because they would be yeah. shown to be in the wrong. Yes. And I, I, I do, I have to say as well, uh, <laughs> yeah, when, when I can go back to teaching... So, so you asked me about the harm. So, for example, where I am right now is I'm actually in, in my bedroom. My wife uh, suggested that I that I sit here because it's much less cluttered, cluttered than my office. I, I've been um, relegated to my, an, a tiny office in my basement for the right. past year and a half. I'm, I still am not allowed to go back on campus. I've had my teaching taken away as a result for the last two years. Um, <laughs> uh, but one of the things when I do return to teaching, I, I have to admit, as an immunologist, I'm I, I, I'm anxious because I'll, I'll apparently be teaching like what has been defined when i when i teach what i've always taught 
a bunch of it is now considered fake science, remarkably, and or misinformation. It's really quite incredible. Uh, and I, I mean, I've got colleagues who have found teaching immunology over the past couple of years to be one of the most stressful things. Uh, there, there's cases of, of we've even had um, the most far removed was uh, I, I know of one professor who was teaching immunology who had the parent of a girlfriend of one of the students who was being taught in the class write a letter of complaint about the professor talking about potential harms of vaccines. Uh, I was actually asked to review the lecture because they were worried, you know, could this be um, controversial? I reviewed it. It was almost identical to a slide that I've had in my lecture material all the time. Um, there isn't one medical intervention that, that that is not associated with some kind of risk, right? So we, so we always, so even we teach the vaccinology, textbook vaccinology, it's all about um, here's sort of what the ideal vaccine looks like. But then there are some known risks associated with vaccines. And that's all this person was listing. And they strategically, like, like intentionally avoided COVID-19 vaccines. Um, so this was talking about historical vaccines. It was completely appropriate. It's what you would find in a textbook, which always has a section on, you know what, vaccines are not perfectly safe all of the time. Um, little section just to remind people, you know, always keep that in mind. You always have to do risk benefit analysis. And, you know, they were getting in trouble for it, called up between in, in front of deans or, or chairs of departments to have to answer for this. It, it's ludicrous. And, and I mean, talk about COVID-19. This is the thing that bugs me is people I have seen professors who have been pushing the, the singular narrative that has been acceptable, deemed acceptable for the past three years. They are freely getting up and giving lectures about everything and anything that that aligns with the narrative. Right. Um, but I can guarantee that either nobody is doing that. Uh, getting up and giving truthful lectures about many aspects of the narrative. Uh, and if they were, they would be in such trouble. I, I, I'm, I'm quite confident. It's crazy. So we have to get things sorted out at our universities. And I had one quick comment. You showed the NSERC funding and, and it occurred to me. This is the other thing we have to think about. It occurs to me whenever I hear physicians and a lot of public health officials, um, the wording is often like it is there with with uh, NSERC, right, where they're talking about vaccine confidence. The money's being given out during the rollout of these COVID-19 shots. So they're constantly talking about vaccine confidence. You know, I, I, Laura Lynn, will always stand by and I will always defend the very elegant concept of vaccination, right? When I teach about vaccination, I like to teach students, uh, first and foremost, here's what an ideal vaccine looks like, okay? Um, and guess what? An ideal vaccine is very effective and quite safe, right? That's an ideal vaccine. Um, I, and I will always argue that an ideal vaccine is one that gets the immune system to respond in a way that is as close as possible, if not identical to how the immune system would respond if it were if a person was naturally infected. The natural immune response is the gold standard to which vaccines should try to attain. Right? That's the concept that I teach. Um, but what people have to understand is, and that, that's what occurs to me when I hear people defending uh, vaccines, they're often talking literally about vaccines. It literally got to the point where if anybody says vaccine now, we just automatically think COVID-19 vaccine, but there's a whole array. And so when people are talking about safety and safe and effective, I think what many people are doing is they're actually what they're talking about, what they're defending, because this is what they're taught in medical school. This is what they're taught in medical school. I think they are defending the textbook definition of an ideal vaccine. That's what they're defending. 
But what we're actually talking about is the COVID-19 shots, which are, as, as I've said, as far away from being an ideal vaccine as one can possibly get and still try to call them a vaccine. Um, and, and with that NSERC funding, as it, as it reads out, okay, vaccine confidence, fine. Um, but the, the, if you look at the actual specific projects, the vast majority of the, those projects are using that money specifically in the context of pushing COVID-19 shots. So that is not appropriate. Uh, yeah, th to me, NSERC misspent a lot of taxpayer dollars in, in pushing that. And I think it's continuing. Um, we have a prime minister who is hell-bent on this for whatever reason. He is not a scientist. He is not a doctor. I don't know what is going on. They want to have all kinds of mRNA. You know, they want to set it up to be making these things um, in Canada. Um, I mean, maybe oh, it's yes. not the mRNA. I, you know, I, I, I'm not a doctor either. And I know Mr. Malone, uh, Robert Malone, created these things. And he... he thought um, that there was a, a good reason for them, but maybe it's not good. I, what do you think? He wasn't intending, yeah, from my conversation with him, he was never intending them to be used uh, the, the way they are now with the precise technology that, they, the, uh, that they're using now. But most importantly, he never intended for the technology to be rolled out so rapidly with so many corners being cut. I'll tell you, he, he's a, a, a guy of integrity. Um, ethics is very important to him. And if this was under his control, he would have followed the traditional path. He wouldn't have been pushing this, trying to get pushing. He wouldn't have tried to push this stuff to market in one year, right? He's right. the kind of person that would have plotted along. So I'll tell people, we, we've heard this cra the crazy term, the speed of science. Uh, used to explain sort of skipping steps or doing things very quickly. Yes. The speed of good science is very slow. You plod along, you know, logically one step at a time. You're very methodical about it. That's why the traditional time to get through uh, human clinical trial testing was historically 10 to 15 years, right? Um, so th that's the difference. If Robert Malone were doing it, that's how he would be doing it. So even if he predicted wrong, and even if he couldn't tweak it in a way that would make it, quite effective and very safe, um, he would have identified it before it's going into a public roller. That's the whole point. Right? That's the whole point of doing research. As researchers, we think we have great ideas. They might be great ideas, but more often than not, our great ideas turn out to not be great ideas. It's more common for our research projects to end in failure, like with, in, in the sense of we don't have a product that can be advanced to help people than projects where we're successful in finding something that can advance forward to people, right? As a scientist, you're always open to that. So yeah, you've got a great, fabulous, you know, new novel invention, um, but we always have to be open, uh, it, like treat it the right way, look at it very carefully. And if it's not worth taking forward into people and, and it's really not gonna have a net benefit in people, we have to be willing to say, okay, uh, that was the wrong path. We step back, we come up with a new idea and we try again. And that's right. the type of person Robert Malone is. That's the difference. Right. Yeah. And, 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 so and, and I you. want to point, but I do want to point something out because what you raise is very important. You, people need to understand there are a massive number of messenger RNA vaccines currently uh, under development. If you do a quick Google search, uh, and, and not just in people. In fact, what a lot of people don't realize is this: these human clinical trials, these were not the first, quote, technical or clinical trials for mRNA vaccines. The first clinical trial for an mRNA vaccine, as far as I can tell, was actually done in cattle for, for a disease in, in cattle. 
Uh, you wouldn't believe the number of veterinary uh, vaccines that are being developed based on this mRNA technology. If you do a quick search right now, there's clinical trial testing going on with two, uh, also that I believe are being designed for cattle, maybe sheep as well. In Australia, one is for a disease called blue tongue disease and um, I forgot what the second one is now, but a quick search and you'll see, and, and interestingly, when you actually find some of the first headlines that come up are scary. It's called, uh, they, they explicitly state fast track, for example, the one I saw is fast tracking of an mRNA vaccine for blue tongue disease, fast tracking, right? That That's terminology that really scares me now. Um, I don't, and also there is, there, there, there was, you can look up, there's a, a university in the United States where researchers receive funding. They are actively, right now as we speak, working on trying to make it as, as crazy as this sounds, lettuce vectored mRNA vaccines. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to be able to put these messenger RNAs into lettuce and they hope to get it into other vegetables such that the plant will take that mRNA and convert it into the, uh, well, it'll be a vehicle for being able to deliver the mRNA through consumption uh, and, or, and the, the plants will be able to manufacture these these pathogenic proteins. So in other words, the idea would be if they were doing a lettuce vectored COVID-19 vaccine, they put the mRNA for the spike protein into the lettuce and let the lettuce manufacture the spike protein um, so that you can eat it. But that's the thing. These people, they are technological wizards. They're, they're incredible molecular biologists, but I don't see anybody who's an immunologist or with, you know, vaccinology expertise who is involved with this. And this is the thing that I want to share uh, really quickly on this topic. We have to very carefully think about, uh, to me, uh, it's just, it's simple. There needs to be a moratorium placed in mRNA vaccines. And we need to stop. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We might have lost you. Oh, is he back? Oh, you're back. You're back. Keep going. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, so so what I wanted to mention then is, um, uh, so we need to pause and do a yes. whole lot of research before we keep advancing these things, uh, or we could run into big problems. And this is the problem. We already know. I didn't, I, you know, as soon as I saw the paper come out that showed these mRNA vaccines being found in breast milk, I started publicly expressing my concerns about mRNA vaccines in general. And the reason is I had seen evidence of this happening. Uh, there was there was a preprint article that came out from a group, I believe it was in tai, Taiwan, or uh, I believe. Um, it has never been published. So I, you know, again, I don't want to, I don't want to go forward with public messaging if I'm not confident in the science. So I waited. And what was missing was, is there some shedding aspect to these vaccines, right? And what the mRNA vaccine being present in the breast milk tells us is yes, it can be shed. It can at least be shed in breast milk and therefore be consumed by infants. And now this is the big red flag for me. So now we're thinking of using mRNA vaccines for all kinds of diseases and all kinds of agricultural species. There's even work being done literally getting vegetables. If you read the... Um, media release by this university, they brag about how anybody could grow their own vaccines then, their own mRNA vaccines in their own backyard, right? You plant your own lettuce and eat it. Uh, I mean, first of all, I'm thinking, how, how do you control the dose with that? For people to think more is better. I mean, this is ridiculous, but this is the, the potential danger. If human, if, 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 if women 
can have the the vaccine that's injected in the shoulder get into the breast milk and be fed to infants. There's no reason to believe that the same thing wouldn't happen, for example, in dairy cattle, where they would then end up in the milk. And I mean, for sure, if you're injecting it into a muscle, there's the potential for the vaccine and or components thereof or derivatives from that being in the muscle. Um, if it's a poultry, there and lots of mRNA vaccines are being developed for poultry. Um, and, and so if it, you know, does that, will it be able to get into the eggs? We have no idea. Nobody's looked. So you're right. The issue is if it gets into food products. And if you directly put it into lettuce, guaranteed, you're going to be eating that as part of the food product. And this is the issue. I want to tell you something. This is what concerns me. One of the way our immune system does not like to respond to things in our environment that come in through our mouth. Um, or that we inhale, for example, because let's think about it. We're constantly inhaling dust, all kinds of foreign material we're inhaling. We're constantly eating foreign material in the form of our food and everything else, right? Um, all kinds of things. So when things come in by the oral route, our immune system typically gets tolerized to it. That is to prevent things like chronic uh, uh, gut inflammation, chronic inflammation of the gastrointestinal tract, which can be very debilitating, very painful. Like just ask anybody with Crohn's disease, for example, right? It's also to avoid things like food allergies. So what we eat, when we put things in our mouth, our immune system is designed to detect those things, but then program our immune system to not respond, right? It says, okay, here's a protein from a food. This is safe. You do not respond to it, right? That prevents this potentially harmful inflammation, chronic inflammation from things that we eat. So this is the thing. If we start getting people across the planet consuming the products from these messenger RNA vaccines, this is this is one one of my concerns. So we, we give so, so okay. This here's an interesting one. The one of the ideas is there are mRNA vaccines being developed for people. For to, to uh, try and protect against influenza, right? The annual flu outbreaks. There, but there are also lots of these vaccines being developed for animals. For example, pigs and chickens. The reason is the worst versions of uh, flu that can be, the, you know, the, the the most deadly in people, are when you get a combination of the flu, a human flu virus, with a swine flu virus or an avian flu virus. Those are the most dangerous. So the idea being to pre prevent that from happening, you you know you vaccinate people to, to protect them from the flu, but you also vaccinate the chickens and the pigs to protect them from the flu. Now, here's my concern. If we start having animal, like uh, meat products, egg products, milk products, whatever, containing these pathogenic proteins, right? And we're eating them. My concern, we, we, we ha, I don't, I can't say this is going to be a problem, but we have to do the research to make sure. Yes. Because if we're eating these pathogenic proteins in our food, we may end up programming our immune systems to say, hey, you see this major dominant protein from the flu virus? It's not dangerous. Don't respond to it. Then what happens to that person when they get infected with the flu and their immune system has been programmed to be able to recognize the most important proteins from that pathogen right we could actually render people much more susceptible to very diseases we're claiming we're trying to protect them against you know so that's just one example so no there are potential major global health harms if we don't stop this stuff honestly and address all of these legitimate questions right if people do all this they answer all we've had more than enough questions raised legitimate questions over the past three years now let's answer them all and you know what if they can be answered all and, and all, all our concerns can be alleviated good i'll give it the two thumbs up and let's go right but we need to do that first
Yes, we do. That that is horrifying. And and uh, you know that I, I know that you're a, a man of faith. But in Matthew and Mark, it says, "Unless the Lord shortened the days, there would be no one left." Th- this is the kind of thing that takes out. You know, all this Project Veritas. Oh, we're maybe thinking about. You know, we can mess with this or mess with that. Like every all these idiots uh, are messing with things that are literally potentially what can bring the end of humanity. And uh, that, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, actually you're right. Of. You're right. Yeah, scientific curiosity can can go into dangerous places. And I often say, just because we have the technical wizardry to do something doesn't mean we should be doing it. You know, and like they said, this stuff with the lettuce vectored mRNA vaccines, uh, I'll tell you, it is fascinating, like incredibly sophisticated molecular biology that they're working on there. Yes. Fascinating, but potentially dangerous. And I would say, no, thank you. That's great. It's yeah. showcases our technological Please don't mess our sets. salad up. We really yes, want just exactly. a salad. Just, just That's right. a salad. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Nothing in it. Keep the MR- mRNA on the side, please. Um, exactly. You know, I, I consider you one of the, the finest doctors, scientists that we have in Canada. And uh, I just want to uh, one final question. Thank you for giving us so much time. Oh, you are a blessing and people are loving you. We have a huge audience right now watching. Um, we have the, um, uh, th- this picture of these, uh, these weird things that, that they are finding. I know this is maybe not your field, but have you, do, can you verify? I mean, these people that are pulling these long things out of people's veins after death or before death. Some people are having their, these long things pulled out before, you know, before harm can come to them, but a lot of it after death. Uh, What do you as a scientist make of this? And is that a totally different field than what you work in? Well, I I can comment a little bit. Yeah, this this is not my uh, specific area of expertise. I definitely think that this, this again should be an open question that we don't shy away from and that we do the research on, uh, because I would like to know the extent to which this might be happening. So again, I'm not the person to definitively say, you know, yes, this is a major problem or or no, it isn't. Uh, I have no reason to disbelieve the uh, limited number of pathologists. And um, uh, I just blanked on the term for the people that, that, uh, the embalmers. Um, I I don't have any reason to believe yeah. Yeah, I don't have any anything, any reason to believe that these these are not legitimate observations. How extensive the problem is, I I can't comment on. But but what I can say is knowing the mechanism of action, like what's going on, and having been open to the idea of all that's going on with this novel vaccine technology, I can tell you that there are some. There, there's like for example, a logical mechanism of action which would even explain. The, the images that you just showed. So usually when blood clots occur, what, what happens is you have all these clotting factors and you sort of get this network. It's kind of like a net that starts to form and, and in it you capture all kinds of red blood cells. So a blood clot is typically red and it's full of red blood cells. What you'll see there is these clots, when they pull them out, you'll see long, there'll be these white sort of fibrous nice. looking tissues. And yes, there's redness on them, but they're separate from, like you can actually, like if you took those strands, uh, it's just because it was freshly pulled out. Uh, there, you could pull those red, those red clots, which is probably just like postmortem clotting, off. And if you clean it up, you end up with these white worm-like looking things, right? Yeah, you can you can see it clearly there. 
So that 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 is what is unusual about them because a natural blood clot will contain red blood cells. It will be red. It will not be white like that. So what I would say is knowing that these lipid nanoparticles, I mean, they tra travel through the blood to get systemically distributed. Uh, Pfizer's own preclinical data clearly shows that. Historical data clearly shows that. And these lipid nanoparticles are designed to fuse. They're, they're little fat bubbles. And when they come into contact with a cell, our cells are basically larger bubbles of fat. Our, our, we have outer layers of fat on all our cells. So when they come together, they fuse and the mRNA gets uh, inserted into the cell. That cell can now start producing the spike protein. Now, interesting, the spike protein, uh, if cells express the spike protein, they can be prone to forming kind of like what we call syncytia, or, uh, or at least they can adhere to one another. So, th so what the, this does is this can cause cells to start uh, fusing or partially fusing or st uh, aggregating together. Uh, and so this is the interesting thing. So there is the, so if white blood cells were having that happen, right, usually blood clots are, are involved mainly the, the, you know, platelets and the red blood cells get trapped up in there. But if this is happening to white blood cells, that would explain if you have a whole bunch of white blood cells that are expressing the spike protein, they could stick together. And, and of course, if they're sticking together and, and, and they start aggregating, because of the shape of a blood vessel, they're not going to form like, you know, a big ball. They're going to adopt the shape of the blood vessel, right? Uh, and, and so that is a theoretical way where you could get these long white strands because literally white blood cells that are that are uh, accumulating. So from a mechanistic viewpoint, that's about all I can really contribute. So what I would say is, uh, yes, I've seen this. Um, I, I've, I've heard it and, and I've seen presentations given by enough people doing this. Again, and I have no reason. I'm not the type of person I'm going to accuse somebody of lying to me. And I've seen enough. You know, I, I never go based on one person, but I have seen enough information from enough embalmers and enough um, pathologists that I accept that it is a problem. That is a real problem. I can't comment on the extent of the problem, but I can postulate reasonable mechanisms of action to explain the potential problem. And wow. once again, there's more than enough rationale that says we need to take this seriously and investigate it very thoroughly. 100%. Uh, everybody wants to know how to follow you. You mentioned your Substack. Um, and also, like, do you have a, um, you know, you can get a subscription because I guess you all have to find a way now to monetize your life so that you can eat as well. So that because you're blessing us, because you're courageous, you're saving humanity for goodness sakes, there has to be a way uh, that you can be um, monetizing the incredible information that you have. Uh, well, I appreciate that. Um... Yeah, so if people do want to follow uh, what I'm doing, yeah, because I do want to try and get science out to people. So I do write a Substack article. Uh, if people want to, uh, to to follow that, it's um, uh, my my, uh, my Substack account is Viral Immunologist. Um, that's that's what I go by. The 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 Substack article I write is called COVID Chronicles, and uh, or if you just go to Substack and then look up my name, you'll find it. Um, yeah, and that's just my way. I try and disseminate information as I'm able to. It's kind yes. of sporadic because I've got many other things to do, including my regular full-time job. Yes. Um, but I try and get information out to people that way. Yes. I, I pray to see the day when you are completely vindicated yourself, Paul Alexander, uh, Dr. Trozzi, who we're having on tomorrow. Um, I, I pray that there will be a way that history reveals uh, what heroes you were in a time when everyone bowed to the system and to propaganda.
Yeah. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I guess we'll see. Uh, unfortunately, you know, my observation is we live in a world now where it's not at all popular to accept when one has has done somebody else wrong, when somebody has maligned somebody else uh, wrongly. You know, apologies don't read, aren't readily forthcoming, um, and certainly the concept of seeking forgiveness, right, is uh, is, is not particularly popular in our society. So. You know, I don't know how much is going to happen on, on those sides, but uh, despite that, right, what, you know, it's so what I've recognized is I keep working on a daily basis to try and find it in my heart to to constantly forgive those, especially those. It's easier to, I mean, easiest to forgive people who apologize and seek forgiveness. Um, I guess next in line would be those who uh, maybe are, haven't apologized, but at least have stopped the ongoing harms. The ones that I have to admit that I am struggling with and, and trying to deal with, uh, because uh, if you know what's important are those where that continue, continue, you know, to harass and so on um, and, and finding, you know, true forgiveness for them, despite the fact they're not only not seeking forgiveness, not apologetic, but actually continuing to cause harm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's great. Yeah. I, I'm actually looking forward to it. Um, just uh, out of interest, I'm, I'm going to be at a in-person uh, Q&A session in Hamilton uh, coming up this Saturday um, where the public will have opportunities to ask questions. This is something that I've been craving for a long time because I fear no questions, right? Um, uh, uh, people who, uh, who are standing on the truth don't fear uh, questions. Uh, so it's great. The public will have an opportunity to ask a bunch of people uh, for um, you know, expert answers on whatever they're, they're interested in. Mark Trazzi is going to be there. I'm actually quite excited because uh, the odd thing about this, as you know, Laura Lynn, is, is uh, we've got to know so many people over the past three years, but all I know them as is uh, as a headshot. Um, so this will be my first time meeting Dr. Mark Trazzi in person, which will be great. It's always been an interesting experience when I've met with these people who I've known online now for a couple of years, work with online for a couple of years, right? You feel like you've got to know them quite well. Um, and it's a really odd experience to then see them for the first time in person. Yeah, so I, I'm I really looking forward to that. Uh, that's going to be a room full of amazing people. And so so can anybody go to, to this event that you're at? Uh, yeah, yeah, if interested, it's it's being done through Bright Light News. They're, um, Bright Light they're, News. they're running the event. I don't know if there's any tickets left, but uh, that would be the, the place. And Is yeah, I appreciate what no you said earlier. Is it Do No Harm Tour? Is it Do No Harm? Uh, Is it that one? A different one? I think it's a different one. Okay, okay. Yes, it's a different one. Yep. Yeah, and uh, I, I liked your your reference because that's exactly I. Um, so so the, what you were just talking about is uh, you know reminds me of the you know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, yes. uh, which is one of my favorite stories, right? And I think it's what we all do need to aspire to, despite you know to stand firm, despite uh, the peer pressure around us, yeah. and, and despite the uh, potential immediate harmful consequences. Yes. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing about that story is they were so polite. They kept saying, your majesty, we will not bow. Yes, yes. And we do believe that we can be rescued. But if we are not, and indeed they're thrown into the fire. But at the end of it, it was the only thing that was burned off of them was the shackles that held them back. They came out victorious. And in fact, then uh, Nebuchadnezzar basically said, whoever does not serve their God uh, you know, is, is now going to be in harm's way. I mean, he was a, com a complete psychopath, but it was the only time that in that fire, they got to dance with God. 
because he was in the fire with them. And I believe that God has been in the fire with all of you, yourself, Dr. Trozzi, uh, Dr. Charles Hoff. And, and so many of you are very strong Christian men, which is so shocking and wonderful all at the same time. You know, other than Dr. Hodkinson, who remains a, a you know, a, a committed uh, atheist or agnostic. He doesn't know what's out there, but I've seen a little bit of shaking even in him, you know, he's uh, kind of yeah, <laughs> coming he's, around. Uh, yeah, I, I'll give him his, his due. He's uh, very respectful about, yes. uh, you know, people thinking differently there. So, yeah. Yes, yep. about faith. That's good. And uh, what yes. you're here. Yeah, yeah. And, well, uh, yeah, and I guess my, my fin like final comment would probably be, um, you know, I told you I found peace uh, largely yes. about uh, six months ago, despite the storm continuing to, to rage. Um, and I have to give a, a shout out. I'm not going to use a, a last name because I don't have their permission, but I, a friend that I've uh, that I made over the past uh, couple of years, his name is George. Um, and he actually uh, pointed me to a book that, that was really helpful. And, and it, I think it's probably become uh maybe my co-equal favorite verse um certainly certainly if not that the second favorite for sure um and it's romans 8 28 right uh for those who trust in the lord all all things will work for good for those who trust in the lord right um to me that's what i've been really leaning on wow that is that absolutely faith. fantastic and is is that book one that you'd want to recommend others to to as well read to give them peace or? uh yeah, actually, can you give me yeah. one second? I actually have the book yeah. almost within reach here. Yeah, yeah, take your time. That's awesome. Okay. Romans eight twenty eight. that is a scripture that I have relied on as well, you know, so many times. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So, you know, it really means that in spite of what everyone has been through, um, in spite of what uh, Dr. Uh, Byron Bridal has uh, been through and he may have knocked us out. There he's back. Uh, in spite of what he's been through, it's all going to work together for good. And it certainly has worked together for good for you and me who are now very aware of the truth because of these yes. incredible men. Exactly. Yeah. So this, uh, my wife got this for me based on this recommendation from my friend George. And this, this is it here. So hopefully you can see God works all things together for your yes. good. Yes. Yeah, that's the that's the title of the book, and it's by so people can see. Yep. Robert J. Morgan. Morgan. Beautiful, beautiful. It's so yeah, great it, to know. Very, very inspiring. Yeah. Oh, and you're inspiring, sir. You are inspiring. So I I pray God's richest blessings on you, for His protection that you will not have harm come to you. In the end, we're still in the middle of this story. We're in the middle of the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story might be in the fire right now, but there's a rescue. And also, I, I just have to believe that this isn't the end, that uh, they've overplayed their hand in all of this, and the truth must prevail. And so we stand and we believe for that, you know? Yeah, well, thank you as well for all that you do, because, uh, yeah, we need real journalists uh, yes. out there right now like you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Byron Bridal. We'll speak with you again. Talk to you soon. Sounds great. It was a pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Oh, I think that guy, that guy, wait till heaven. That guy's going to have a really nice a, a throne room seat somewhere because of what he's done. He could have been silent. He could have sold himself out. He, Like the churches have, like the other doctors who know the truth. 
right? I have doctors contacting me saying, you know, uh, well, all kinds of things. I mean, they don't believe what's going on and they're there, but they're not willing to come out. They are too afraid. They'll lose their income. And, and I get it. That's a huge thing. But thank God for those who are not willing to compromise and, and are willing to speak the truth for saving humanity. How else do you and I know that, that we shouldn't have been taking these shots? Because of men like this, Peter McCullough, because of Dr. Trozzi, Dr. Charles Hoff sounding the alarm in Canada in the very beginning when the First Nations people were, it was being rolled out first to them. Wow. How arrogant. How arrogant is this evil? Unbelievable. Okay, so my website, laurelin.tv. My name's Laurelin Tyler Thompson. Thank you very much for supporting us. We went so long today, but I do not. Oh, we have got to go long when we've got Dr. Byron Bridal. We have got to let him just get all of that information out, and we need to have him on more, Toby. Let's book Dr. Byron uh, Bridal much, much more often. And we do want to recommend also Dr. Trozzi. He has an event coming up. And um, it's a the Do No Harm uh, conference that is happening. And Dr. Charles Hoff will be there, all of these great people. And uh, interestingly, okay, so, so Saturday, January 28th, this coming up, and uh, Sunday, January 29th, and 4 p.m. Oh, that little thing just came up. Oh, wow. Oh, then it just... Sorry, you know, on my screen, it hides all the information. Dr. Paul Alexander, Dr. Charles Hoff, Dr. Uh, Chris Shoemaker, Michael Alexander, I believe he is the lawyer that is helping them. And Sunday, uh, January 29th, 3 to 7 p.m. And I was kind of going to read that um, where, where it's at, but it's, well, you go to donoharmtour.com and find out. So do you see what city this is in at all, JT? Oakville and Windsor. Okay, Oakville and Windsor. So you guys all need to make your way out here to British Columbia. We need to have everybody. I am working on a big event with Dr. Peter McCullough. I will tell you more about that um, coming up. And also there was another event. And, oh, Christine Anderson. So I'm going to also be heading to Calgary for this February 18th. Um, and 23rd, she has got a couple of uh, events going on across Canada. Of course, we just interviewed her. Wasn't that an incredible time uh, to, yeah, February 18th, oh, 2023. Okay, but she does have, this is only the one for Calgary. And to my understanding, she's, is it Ottawa? Yeah, so, okay, everyone, if you want to know if she's in your area, you just got to go to this um to this website right here, that www.cadtour.com. Get your tickets. The lovely Beth Ann and uh, Stacy have put this together. Two beautiful patriot women in Canada um, standing up and bringing the truth to all of us. Thank you for being with me today. Uh, I have loved it. I have loved this information. There are days when I know I am in exactly the right place that God intended. And after losing, you know, uh, jobs that I loved uh, for fighting for what was right, uh, after the loss, after the pain, after 
all that happens in life where we, you know, so many of you now facing the loss of your jobs because you have not succumbed like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you have stood. And I know you're in the fire as well, but God is with you. God is with you. So um, I'm going to leave by reading for you today, Romans 8, 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. <laughs> oh, there's so much in there. The pains of childbirth are horrific. I know. I did it three times. It was just, oh, I couldn't even do it again after the third time. But um, women keep doing it. Do you know why? Because after the birth is this beautiful gift. And you go through all the pain to get this beautiful child that you could never see life without them. From the moment you lay eyes on them, from the moment you conceive, and you know you've got a baby inside of there, you've got a human being with a destiny. It's a beautiful thing. And then you gotta go through this pain for the birthing. So we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? You know, you don't go around going, oh, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope I have a car. And you have a car. Oh, I hope I'm going to have a, a dinner tonight. You know, I hope I'm going to eat today. And of course, you're going to hope that you're going to hope for something that you don't have. Human beings right now are hoping for an awful lot. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently, it says. Patiently. God's not really fixing this today. And you might be upset about that. But I would challenge you. I've stopped being upset about when God fixes this. Because I see a lot of Canadians and Americans beginning to bow their knee to God alone, refusing to bow to the tyranny, getting stronger. If Mr. Trudeau thinks that he has caused us to be crushed, he has only sealed our resolve to be stronger. He has only shown us that we have to stand even more powerfully. And at this hour, as God is not fixing the storm right now, did you hear what Dr. Byron Bridal said? that he's learned to get peace in the midst of the storm. Can you find that? I want that. I don't need God to make it all better right now. And I challenge you not to be so set on that, that you're full of anxiety and you're worried and you're full of fear every single day, that you would wait patiently for God to fix this in his time and in his way. Do not discount that. This pain that we're going through is actually leading many people to search for truth in their lives, to search for what is right, to find God. Some of our kids 
Some of our loved ones need to find God. And so all of this anxiety in the world, this crisis, this tyranny, part of that is taking us to that place. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. We wait patiently. See you tomorrow. God bless. You know, it's not easy to deliver the truth of what our sick world is doing, but for some of us, we feel that we have no choice. Because if we are silent about these abominable things, then we are letting evil go unchecked, and we cannot do that. For those of you wonderful people who are writing me and are sharing your encouragement, I am deeply grateful. Thank you for all the letters that you've been sending. Thank you for the donations and the support. I found out that in order to speak the truth, you have to become very, very strong. If you would go to my website at www.lauralyn.tv, you'll find all of the ways that you can contact me. Remember, my friends, all is well. All is well. Thanks for joining me.